All right, let's do this one last time. How could there be two Spider-Man? I'm from another dimension. Can you float through the air when you smell a delicious pie? Selecting a bagel? I have a psychic link with a spider who lives inside my father's robot. Wherever I go, the wind follows. And the wind smells like rain. Hey. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to a brand new episode of Assembly Required, an MCU retrospective. The show where we normally reassemble the MCU piece by piece, movie by movie, but today we we're going freeform. It. Yeah, we assembled it. We're going jazz now. We are. We're just like taking whatever we can get. We're just like picking stuff out of the air. We are. We're on uncharted territory, my friends. But thankfully. I have assembled a spectacular suite of spider people to talk all about, I think, my favorite superhero movie of all time, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. I've got Peaches here, I've got Robbie here, I've got Chris here, the band is together. What's going on, guys? Hey. <laughs> there it is. I can't top that. There yep. it is. Same. All right, well, let's go home, boys. <laughs> Great episode, guys. <laughs> great ability means great responsibility. All right. Well, I was going to use that later. Now I can't. But thank you. We can all we can all use whatever we want all the time. We're all Spider Men. <laughs> We're all Spider People here. I you think that's a metaphor. <laughs> Not specifically you. <laughs> well. Everybody that has been listening so far, thank you for listening to all of our MCU episodes, and thank you if you're continuing to listen now when we're not talking about the MCU. <laughs> we're still uh, talking about the M of the MCU, but uh, even the MC, because these mm -hmm. are cinematic, it's just not part of the MCU. There's a dog behind me. Um... <laughs> Hi, Teddy. So th thank you very, very much for taking the time to listen. Um, we're really passionate. I, okay, let me not say we. I am very passionate about this movie in particular. I think the other gentlemen here enjoy it very much. So, And so it's going to be a lot of fun to talk about it. Um, and so you're probably wondering, I know we've talked about it before, but you, if you didn't listen to that episode, you're probably wondering what happens after this. Well, after this episode, we are going to start our deep dive into the first season of Daredevil on Netflix. So be on the lookout for that after this episode is posted. I'm not going to give you a time frame because whatever time frame I give you would always just be two weeks after that. So I just won't. Um, <laughs> well, if you say tomorrow, then it'll be two weeks from tomorrow. Good point. Good point. Um, and, you know, we've recorded four Spider-Man episodes so far. I know you guys have not even heard one of them, uh, but this will be our fourth Spider-Man recording right here. Uh, so as you can tell, we like Spider-Man here on this podcast. Which I think lots of people do, which I think what is what makes this movie, uh, one of the things that makes this movie so successful. But let's get into the development and release. Robbie, take it away, my friend. All right, absolutely. Um, nothing quite windy or interesting, uh, but did want to go over a few things. Uh, we first found out about this film in 2014 when the uh, big Sony leak happened. Uh, and one of the things that was in there is that Sony wanted to rejuvenate their um, possession of this Spider-Man property in theaters. And so they were going to do an animated comedy written and directed by uh, Phil Lord and Christopher Miller, who were the duo behind the Lego movies and 21 Jump Street. Um, 
I have now realized that they're geniuses. Uh, so clearly, uh, Miller ended up only producing, but not writing. So this was Lord's first film without him. Um, he wrote the story along with Rodney Rothman, uh, and Bob Perchetti was, came in to direct along with Lord and Rothman. Um, and they also got a lot of help from, uh, Marvel writers. Uh, they decided to focus on Miles Ma Morales, Miles Morales, who at that time was actually still a fairly recent character. Uh, he's pretty close to household name, I would think, at this point, in, uh, at least among comics fans, but uh, at that point was had, had was becoming very popular, but still pretty fresh. And they brought on Brian Michael Bendis, who was the writer who created Miles, uh, to help consult on the film. And then uh, they brought in several other Spider-Man characters who we'll all talk about. Um, some of them were also very new at that point. Some of them were 1964 old. Uh, and then they also brought in a bunch of le lesser but legendary Spider-Man villains not seen in other films. So they really wanted, one of the things they wanted was they wanted this movie to be, have a reason for existing when we already had Spider-Man films. Now I think the fact that it got Spider-Man more right than any other Spider-Man film, which is probably me spoiling my coming opinions of this film, but I think that's <laughs> enough reason for it to exist. But they also wanted, they wanted a different character, so they went with Miles. They wanted a different aged Peter, so they went with old Peter, and they wanted some villains that hadn't really been touched on, so... They gave us some some legendary but lesser used villains like Prowler and Tombstone. Uh, they gave us uh, somewhat of an ultimate version of Green Goblin, stuff like that. Uh, they wanted the film to look like a comic book, and I think this is the most important part of the development is the animation of this film. And I'm sure we'll talk about this throughout it, but uh, they used a wide variety of effects that are typically used on static pages. So they made every frame of this film look like it was a comic book page and then strung those together so there's animation. Uh, they do not use typical animation effects like squishing and stretching. They found other ways of doing things like that. Uh, they do use things that you'll typically see on a static page, but not on film, uh, like Ben Day dots, which are those little dots that make it look like there's shading or color, um, which is one of my favorite aesthetics is Ben Day dots. It's used a lot in the new DuckTales as well. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's part of why I love this film is all those Ben Day dots. Um, they also did not intentionally, they did not use motion blur because you wouldn't see motion blur on a comic page. So you don't see motion blur in this film. Um, they, and they intentionally used imperfections. Like several frames of the film have color bleed. Like you'd see on a comic book that you checked out of a film. This is not a con or out of a store and there's color bleed. Um, and let's see, uh, another great effect that's talked about a lot is Peter Parker. It, Peter B. Parker is animated at 24 frames per second while Miles is animated at 12 so that the experienced one is nice and smooth and the inexperienced one is a little more janky and uh, rough around the edges. And it took them a year to animate, I think, 10 seconds of film to get the look they wanted right. And then from there, they started animating. Uh, and the result was at one point, 177 animators were needed at once to complete this film, which makes it the largest uh, production ever for Sony um, animation. Uh, let's see. And of course they use different animation for all the different Peter Parkers, which I know we're going to, or all the different Spider-Men, which we'll get into later. Um, before this, there were a couple other examples of the crossovers of Spider-Man. Uh, there was a 2010 video game, Shattered Dimensions. Uh, did any of you guys play Shattered Dimensions? Uh, I remember it because yeah, that one I had like Spider-Man Noir in it. And yeah. yes, it had 2099 Spider-Man and Spider-Man Spider Noir. And it's, Supposedly a pretty good game. I've heard people say they like it. I've only watched Let's Plays. I wasn't that interested in because it's not like free and open, which is what I like for my Spider-Man games. I like him to swing around Manhattan. 
this game was in hallways and tunnels and and closed spaces but uh has a good narrative um but it used spider-man noir uh and then in 2014 they had the limited comic book run spider-verse uh, which is where penny parker was introduced um toby mcguire was initially um going to be peter b parker uh which i th- think that would have been cool and fun but they thought it would be confusing they didn't want it to literally be that peter parker so instead they went with jake johnson um a whole lot of other great voices in this shameek lore leave schreiber that means leave schreiber is now on the list of people that have been multiple marvel characters because now mm-hmm. um uh he was Saber-tooth. Uh, Saber-tooth. yeah yeah saber and now he's also um herschel ali who is now three marvel characters yeah, that's right. Yeah, Wade, the... Cottonmouth, and uh, yeah, his dad, and, and yeah, um, no, is it is he's Prowler? He's Prowler. Prowler. He's yeah, Prowler. Yeah. He's Prowler. Uh, Haley Steinfeld, Nicholas Cage, John Mulaney, Kamiko Glenn. Haley Steinfeld, who is rumored to soon be on that list. Oh, really? Kate, who? Kate Bishop. Oh, oh, that's perfect. Yeah, it is perfect. It hasn't. There, uh, the rumor is that they're in negotiations still, wow. but. Uh, Oh yeah, uh, Zoe Kravitz, Catherine Hahn, Chris Pine, um, John Mulaney was told he was not given any information. Just asked if he wanted to be in a superhero animated movie, and they would not tell him anything because they didn't want leaks. And so he didn't know what he was doing until they brought him into the recording studio and told him who he was playing. Um, and then they let him ad lib quite a bit, which resulted in tons of profanity laced outtakes. <laughs> I want to hear those. <laughs> and I mean profanity-laced outtakes. Uh, And then, of course, there's the famous story of Nicolas Cage. They decided he was not being uh, enough of a caricature in his voice as Spider-Man Noir, and so they asked him to really turn it on, and his response was, oh, you want me to go full Cage? All right. And then he did. (laughs) (laughs) That's what we got. (laughs) At least she's self-aware, right? Okay, I have a a thought real quick with uh-huh. the actors that you named off like i knew that chris pine was the peter parker that dies uh-huh. in the in the film yeah but if cool. they were considering toby Maguire, the story that that peter parker uh tells us in the beginning is the one that we remember from the original spider-man trilogy why wouldn't they have Thank toby you for pointing Maguire out. <laughs> play him yeah doesn't that would make a lot of sense to me have toby well the peter b parker also has those uh, those same story beats in his origin but then they go past that to right you know, all the sad things. You guys are spoiling yeah. future discussion topics. Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. No, no, no. Also, no, continue, continue. <laughs> I was just reading, by the way, that they had, in addition to considering him for that, they also had written a scene that Sony told them that they couldn't do that would have had Tobey Maguire, Andrew Garfield, and Tom Holland. Mm-hmm. That was going to be a, a post credit scene. Um, God, I wish. I, I am almost certain that it will happen next time. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, you know Sony got that in the in the contract now. Yeah. It'll be great. Yeah, yeah. They uh, because they they were afraid that it would be too confusing. But now I think with um, and we'll talk about how successful this movie was. And mm-hmm. even though it's the lowest grossing Spider-Man movie I'm, of all I'm time, about which to get is to just that. horrible. <laughs> Sorry, I get mad about that, even though I shouldn't. Uh, yeah, but yeah. but 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 I think this movie winning an Oscar and all that it showed that people right people get it. So, right, exactly. Yeah, they'll, they'll be in it. <laughs> and to what Chris said, <laughs> if they can work is, it out with the actors, right? And to what Chris said, sometimes this movie is kind of considered a disappointment. It grossed three hundred and seventy-six million dollars uh, compared to modern superhero movies or the other Spider-Man films. That's a disappointment. But compared to animated films, that's not at all a disappointment. Mm-hmm. It is the highest-grossing Sony animation film ever. 
Um, it had the best December opening for an animated film ever. People, ex- unless it's a Disney animated feature, people don't go to animated movies to the tune of much more than $376 million. Also, I don't know if you guys remember, I feel like there was no advertising for this. Like, this just kind of happened. The advertising for this film was basically y'all on my Facebook and in our group chats. Um, I was hyped for this film, but I don't remember anything on television or anything hyping me for this other than my friends. So I don't think it should be considered a disappointment. I know a lot of us think, well, this is better than all these other superhero movies, but, and that's fair. And maybe people should go see animation, but this movie still sold like gangbusters. Uh, Yeah. For better or for worse, there is a different expectation for animation. I, um, I don't know what the budget of this is compared to a live action Spider-Man movie also. Right. Uh, so it, yes. it's probably more, you know, like comparable when it comes to profits. I mean, not when, you know, you have far from home making a million dollars, that's different, but uh, yep. like, unless you're frozen, you don't have an animated movie that makes a billion dollars. That, that just doesn't happen. Right. Why, why is that? It's not just Disney. It, it's not just the Disney name. Is because it? It's for because kids. I see that doesn't make sense to me. A and B, I, I, I almost wanted to think that it's like, sorry, sorry, any uh, more elderly listeners out there, but I always kind of thought it was like an old people thing. I had one of my grandparents growing up would get so mad whenever I watched cartoons because he thought that cartoons were a waste of TV space. Mm -hmm. And the only reason was because they were cartoons, because I I guess it goes back to what you said. He, He thought they were childish, but then he would watch like like tim allen on tool time all day like there's there's not really a difference in 30 minutes of what you like and 30 minutes of what someone else likes so i don't really understand the like aversion away from animation so that was you would think by now there would be i mean enough people would understand that animation is a medium it's not a genre right right and that there is great animation for adults there's great animation for kids there's great animation that crosses uh, you know, spans the demographics. Right. A lot of my, there's still a bit of a stick out there weirdly. Yeah. A lot of my favorite things of all time are animated. What are you saying, Eduardo? Yep. So I was looking at something because I remember before the two properties that Robbie had listed, I remember one other instance of the spider verse and it was in the Spider-Man animated. Oh series. yeah. Thank it you. It was a story with Madam Web the end. where she brings in, it was, it was the, the end. She brings in, Peter Parker. Then there is a Spider-Man that has the multi arms like Peter has in the animated series. At one mm-hmm. point, there is an Iron Spider. Mm-hmm. There is the Scarlet Spider. Mm-hmm. There is a Spider-Man who has Doc Ock's arms. Mm-hmm. And then there is one last Spider-Man who you don't really know about, but it turns out he's literally just an actor playing mm-hmm. Spider-Man from our dimension. Yes, <laughs> yes. That's it's wonderful. actually really good. Like that that cartoon is not high production value but it was a pretty good finale and the villain is spider carnage so spider-man with the carnage symbiote which is believe it or not an overpowered villain (laughs) 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 Um, although i guess spider-man originally did have technically this carnage symbiote huh um well is is carnage a offshoot of Venom's carnage is born symbiote. so carnage is born from venom eddie brock shared a gel cell with cletus cassidy cletus cassidy got okay. um a spawn of the symbiote and yeah 
Okay. But he's I thought it was something like that, yes. but I wasn't. Well, in some of the in some of them it's because he's got a cut on his arm mm-hmm. and the the symbiote enters his bloodstream, which is red. why it's red. That's why it's red. And it has okay. a stronger yeah. bond with him, so he's able to do like things with his symbiote that like Eddie Brock couldn't because Eddie Brock right. is just partnering with it, but it's not like part of him the way it is mm-hmm. with Carnage. Right. Of course, the symbiote mythology has like way expanded over I the past year in the comics. As much as I can. <laughs> it, it's gotten maybe a little too far. It's got like, um, I was having this discussion with Bailey. It's the like other tied day. up with Thor now. Mm-hmm. And... Right, yeah. And like a lot of these properties, sometimes it's just better to leave it a mystery yeah. because Absolutely. when you give people the answers and it ends up not being what they want. It ends up being like a bad thing in the end, right? Like it's the J.J. Abrams effect of the recent Star Wars movies where you you list all these fun mysteries and then the answer to those mysteries don't live up to your expectations and then suddenly you're disappointed. Carnage Palpatine. What happens with Doctor Who is every new showrunner that comes in gives their big answer to the mystery of the Doctor. So now there are like 10 answers and and none of them are any good. Right. So, now in one way the film was successful that Chris got to. It did win Best Animated Feature, the Oscar for Best Animated Feature. It is only the sixth non-Disney Pixar film to win that, and I think it was the first in like seven years to do it. And Yeah, I'm trying to think. And if I remember, there the was first no one, doubt it was going to win it either. I, I was going to be extremely upset if it didn't. I know that. Uh, what was it up against? It was like up against Frozen 2 and... Well, it would have been Frozen... If- no, it wasn't up against Frozen, because Frozen won, right? Frozen had to have won Best Animated Feature. Hold on. Well, Frozen did. Yeah, I'm talking about Frozen 2. Was it up against Frozen 2? I thought it was, but now, like now, now I'm doubting so myself. So it would have been the 2018? Okay, Oscar. I thought it was the last Oscars. Was it? Yeah, when uh, when Parasite won a bunch of stuff. Um, Trying to find it. Yeah, yeah, because... Um, yeah, was it was the 2019 Oscars? Incredibles. Yeah. No, this was when. No, this was when Green Book won. Okay, okay I'm. So what was it up against? Was yeah, it Incredibles right. two and Ralph breaks the internet? Okay, well, uh, okay. Ralph breaks the internet is shouldn't exist. So this is a guess. This is this is not me. Later, we're gonna talk about probably yet. our favorite animated. There we go. I found the Oscar nominations. And Wreck It Ralph is one of my favorites. Like maybe my very favorite. It's it's up there with this. Ralph breaks the internet is the opposite. <laughs> I okay. Why is it so hard to find the animated category? Why are you sticking all the way down to the bottom? Probably for the same reason it only makes three hundred seventy six million dollars. Yeah. Okay, animated feature. Mm-hmm. That's the wrong year. Wow. Damn it! <laughs> I was like, boss baby. We'll no figure one will get it in out. their seats for the yeah. Chris Finds the Animated Feature of 2009 portion of the film. Hey, no. Why are you so bad? The 2019, that's it? It yeah, was okay. How to Train Your Dragon, The Hidden World, I Lost My Body, Klaus, and Missing Link. Okay, so it was the obvious winner. What? Uh, I... No, I've got no, it that, no. That's Toy Story Four. Oh, You're right. You're right. Yeah. It's Incredibles Two, Isle of Dogs, Miri, and Ralph okay. breaks the internet again. It was the obvious winner. I'm in here with the facts. <laughs> yeah. There now. I hadn't seen Isle of Dogs, and I know that was uh, was that Wes Anderson. I think so. 
Yeah. Isle of Dogs is Wes Anderson. Yeah. So there was a chance. I feel like there was a chance for that because mm-hmm. you know he's notorious. And then I had not seen Mirai, and that's a Japanese movie. Um, and you is know, that Studio make- Ghibli? The art style is very reminiscent, but I don't believe it is. Yeah, no, it's um, Studio uh, Studio Chizu. Interesting. Um, you know the yin to Ghibli's yang, Chizu. Yeah. No. <laughs> it, that was actually the first non-Ghibli anime film to receive an Academy Award nomination in the category. Okay. Yeah. Okay, we're getting too far off the rails. Let's jump okay. into this movie. Let's just jump into it, yeah. Philip DeFranco. Boy. Oh, there, here we go. That's, that's <laughs> becoming a thing. <laughs> with the introduction, all right, let's do this one last time. In an opening credit sequence with art reminiscent of classic comic books, our friendly neighborhood Spider-Man quickly runs over his backstory and his oh. life to this point. I'm going to do that thing where I interrupt you right away. Good. Go for it. Um, <laughs> approved by the Comics Code Authority. <sighs> made me so happy. Same. Uh, when that popped up and like filled mm-hmm. the full screen with the old Comics Code logo that, uh, very briefly, if you're not familiar with the Comics Code, that was the thing back in the day where all of the comics had to follow very strict content uh, guidelines or they would not be approved or they couldn't be sold in stores. Uh, there's a whole book about it, which is sitting on my bookshelf that I have not yet read. Uh, all about the comics code and there's going to be a chapter know, how, about spider-man but, yeah because there was a major um, point that spider-man ref, uh violated the code and just said screw it it was about drug abuse oh sense. yeah and i think that's that's probably when dc and marvel decided that they didn't need to follow the comics code Correct. anymore and that's why it kind of went away but it was one of those things where uh you might be familiar with this phenomenon where uh when kids get into a hobby uh, or a new sort of uh, art form or entertainment that, that the parents don't understand, Congress starts to have hearings. No. <laughs> yeah. No. They did it with rock and roll. They did it with rap. They did it with comic books. They've done it with video games. They did it with Dungeons and Dragons, you know. Uh, it's... D&D. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah, no. There are a lot of people that said D&D was a gateway to Satanism Say, and that people yeah, were that's... actually conjuring demons in their basement. I knew a lot of that growing up. I wish that uh-huh. was true. I would conjure so many demons. <laughs> what about the demons that are already inside? <laughs> I'm a very dark person, as we all know. Um, uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, that was my interruption. I love that comics code gag. That's great. In addition to his typical origin story and tragedy beats, Spider Spidey also references moments from the Sam Raimi films, including Spider-Man Three Dance, Blessed, uh, his questionable ice cream truck popsicle, best ice cream and truck having popsicle. created popsicle. <laughs> and I think the best part was how the eyes were like falling <laughs> off the face. That's like how I always got those popsicles. Yes. The eyes were oh. never where they were supposed to be, and having yeah. created a merchandise empire of comic books and Christmas albums. Uh, Spidey establishes he was bitten 10 years ago and since then has been the one and only Spider-Man and emphasizes that he loves the job. At home, Miles Morales is listening to one of the best songs of that year <laughs> and creating street art name tags. When You're not parody- getting anybody arguing with you on that on this podcast. No one's going to argue with <laughs> that here right now. I don't think anyone can argue it because I think like literally statistically it was like the top billboard of that year. Like 
Oh, it is I, one of the most popular songs of that year, regardless. I used to uh, agree with you that I didn't think anyone would argue with it, but then <laughs> I turned out to be wrong. <laughs> no backstory <laughs> for that. Just leave the listener. <laughs> We're talking about Sunflower, by the way. If you yeah. haven't watched this movie for some reason, if you haven't watched this movie, just watch. What is wrong with you? Watch it's the on movie. Netflix. Yeah, stop listening to us. Go watch the Don't listen to us if you haven't seen the movie. Go watch the movie. You'll thank us. <laughs> and then listen to us talk about what you just watched. Uh, so he's listening to music, creating street art name tags when his parents, Rio and Jefferson, hurry him into packing and leaving for school. Miles' father, a police officer, gives his son a ride in his squad car to school, which embarrasses Miles. Now, I want to talk about, um, I don't think you glossed, glossed over it on purpose, Robbie, but I want to talk about the scene directly before this. Mm -hmm. So it's the scene right after he leaves his house, says goodbye to his mom, and he's sort of just walking through the streets of New York saying what's up to people. Um, And I think this movie establishes its culture very early on, and I think this is one of the scenes that really does it. Um, Miles is um, speaking the language sort of that we do. I think comic book movies can sometimes... Uh, I think you can like point at some like the Thor movies and stuff and some of the beginning uh, comic movies where it feels like there's a specific way everybody speaks and it's not the way that everyone in the world speaks. Right. And I think this movie does a really good job of establishing um, the music. It has some, uh, the song is by Nicki Minaj and it's um, partially in Spanish and it's like really good. Uh, He's speaking Spanish to some of the people there. He's speaking English. He's speaking in in slang that is um, culturally relevant to that area. Um, And it shows a lot of the confidence that Miles has early on. And it's important to talk about this scene because they almost mirror the scene once he gets to his new school Mm -hmm. and he tries some of these same tactics and they don't work because he's around a different crowd. And if that's not step one of being relatable, then I don't know what is. And this movie is all kinds of relatable relatable on uh, I think a, a bunch of different fronts yeah. and this is just sort of the beginning of it absolutely um, so yeah he gets picked up as father uh, a police officer gives him a ride to school in a squad car uh, which embarrasses miles the conversation between the two establishes miles has recently been enrolled by his parents in a posh boarding school to create opportunity for him but miles misses his old school uh, Jefferson also expresses his disdain for spider-man uh and it's so, so I'm going to say something really weird here, but I need you guys to go with me. Oh boy. Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse has a lot in common with some of the themes from The Last Jedi. And what I mean by that is anyone can be Spider-Man. Doesn't matter where you come from, oh. who you are, what neighborhood you're from. Anyone can be Spider-Man, which I think is what The Last Jedi tries to do with being a Jedi. I think that movie had positioned it to be that anyone can be a Jedi. It doesn't matter where you come from, where you are. You don't need to have some sort of special lineage. You don't have to be Peter Parker. Well, Into the Spider-Verse 2 better not reveal that Miles (laughs) Morales' grandfather is Venom. (laughs) I'm going to be real mad. (laughs) Your real name is Miles Miles Octavius. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Miles Cassidy. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, and so we start to see this. And so um, Jefferson explaining his disdain for Spider Man really kind of frames Miles' position 
right? It, it frames his position as to how we're going to get through the rest of this movie. And it, it frames a lot of the decisions that he makes because he knows his dad doesn't like Spider-Man. At the end of the ride, Jefferson and Miles end up in an argument about Miles' future. Jefferson asks if Miles wants to end up like his Uncle Aaron, and Miles says he doesn't see a problem with that. When Miles leaves angry, Jefferson forces Miles to say, I love you, Dad, by calling him out over the squad car PA in front of his new classmates, <laughs> mortifying And to son. your point about this film being relatable, I think this is also part of it as well. Like, they're having an argument, but it's not going, it's not going quite as far as a lot of films would of just having an actual falling out. They don't, they hate each other. And now there's going to be a tragic death. And like, it's just a father son relationship. They're having an, a normal right. father son argument. They still say, I love you at the end, even if it's embarrassing. I think that's part of what makes it relatable. Just like you said, that's a copy. <laughs> that's such a great response to You have to say, I love you too. That's a copy. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah no, it, it is a great moment. The character, and, not the yeah. former confederate it's weird that that's his yeah, name it is. Are you, so i was so, looking up as ben just why i was looking up why miles doesn't go by his father's last name and it's because he doesn't want to refer to himself as miles davis so he uses oh. his mom's last name that okay but his that dad will sense. just have to leave <laughs> jefferson davis <laughs> <laughs> he can't do anything about it i don't think take his wife's name <laughs> A montage shows Miles being overwhelmed with his workload in classes and unable to bond with his classmates. So like I was saying earlier, we get sort of the duality of these two scenes of showing how uncomfortable Miles is in this world. Miles is late for a physics class watching a film where a... F I'm not saying that word. Where a female frumpy. scientist... <laughs> a fr frumpy female scientist <laughs> explains the idea of a multiverse. I want you guys to know that I did not write that. You say frumpy because uh, she has dreadlocks? Well, she's, she's disheveled and doesn't wear her glasses straight. and She's supposed to be into her work. <laughs> it's a trope. Agree to disagree. <laughs> I don't think frumpy has ever been a trope. It's the name ever, of a clown but... in a comic. It was a trope in that comic. Ah. <laughs> Got it. He tries to play off being late. He tries to play being laid off as a joke, and he gets a new girl in the class to laugh. And Miles clearly thinks he has an opportunity with her. Oh. After the class, the physics teacher calls I out think Miles. I have a chance with this girl. <laughs> for intentionally trying to flunk out of school and assigns him a personal essay about himself as homework. One of the things I love about Miles is that he is mm -hmm. smart, but he is not a super genius. He's just a smart kid, and like. I don't know about you guys, but I was a smart kid, but I wasn't a super genius, right? right? Like, I was, you know, I was a nerdy kid. I, I, you know, I, um, I, I, and that's just another thing about Miles that's just relatable. He's just like, he's like the everyman Spider-Man, and it, it, it makes him incredibly relatable. There's a, like, there's a lot of points in the movie where you can tell he's smart, but he's also probably thinking, like, too many steps ahead, and so in the moment, he's he he can't like he can't catch up to the three steps ahead he is so he does something different instead like what you just said he answers all of the questions wrong you think if he's trying to flunk he would answer like half right. of the questions wrong and half of them right or like later on in the movie when he uh after he has he gets his powers he's running from the security guard and he stops yes and says, he's like uh morales and then in his head he's like play dumb 
Who's Morales? Not that dumb. Not that dumb. <laughs> like one of the best gags in the movie. Like he's that. smart, but he's thinking so far in the future that he's not. You know what I mean? Like, and I th- I think that's relatable too. Is that like yeah. sometimes you just I get really caught relate up. to being smart and also dumb at the same time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's humanizing, right? Uh, frustrated by a situation, Miles sneaks out at night. Happily wandering Brooklyn at night, Miles goes to visit his uncle Aaron. Miles and his uncle clearly have a great relationship as they hang out watching TV. I love the scene of him getting the text message that Miles there and he looks up and Miles' face is against the glass uh-huh. and he's. <laughs> <laughs> um, I also want to point out: um, Did you see what's on the TV when when he gets there? I did not. It is a shot from the TV show Community. It is Donald Glover putting on his Spider-Man pajamas. That is important for mm-hmm. many, many reasons. When they were uh, casting for the Amazing Spider-Man movies, there was this big fan campaign, hashtag Donald for Spider-Man. Because a lot of people thought Donald Glover should be playing Spider-Man. It was like, that's a great idea. Um, it didn't happen, obviously. So in Community, they had him put on the Spider-Man pajamas as a nod to that. Brian Michael Bendis, hearing all the people saying Donald Glover should play Spider-Man, was like, yeah, you know what? That's a great idea. And created Miles Morales. And then cool. Donald Glover. And Donald Glover. <laughs> is Aaron Davis. First of all, played Miles Morales on the animated Spider-Verse, um, the cartoon. When, when, when Spider-Verse comics happened, um, the Ultimate Spider-Man cartoon also did a Spider-Verse story and introduced Miles Morales in that. And Donald Glover played him. And then, of course, he played Aaron Davis. The Prowler. And will play the Prowler. I'm dying on that hill. I hope, I hope so. so. Yeah. Whoa. Um, but. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Donald Glover is always in the orbit of Miles Morales. <laughs> Miles and his uncle clearly have a great relationship. And as they hang out watching TV, Miles tries to brag to Aaron about the new girl being into him. Aaron teaches Miles about. Sure. The shoulder touch. Telling him to go up to the new girl, touch her shoulder, and say, Hey. Miles is very bad at it. Hey. Uh, Aaron has an idea and takes Miles deep into an abandoned subway line where he helps Miles spray paint elaborate street art on an empty wall. Uh, Miles' uncle talks about how he and Jefferson used to do this together, but drifted apart when Jefferson became a cop. Uh, I think what Miles graffitis there is also really really important um so he's given earlier a um he's given earlier a a copy of great expectations to do a um to do like a book assignment on and he takes that and he he understands the sort of pressure that he has and that sort of pressure is a theme and i'm going to talk about themes extensively as we talk about this movie but that that type of pressure that type of expectation is a theme that permeates this movie because it's not just the expectation from his parents it's the expectation to be spider-man right it's this thing that is thrust upon him that he didn't necessarily want but he now is forced to do and i think once again a relatable thing for people we everyone in this planet gets thrust things all the time that they don't want to deal with that they feel like they shouldn't have to deal with they shouldn't need to do it is um I think this movie does a really great job of sort of expressing that and giving a vessel to it and, and giving sort of an outlet of of seeing him succeed. I think we all 
throughout from the very beginning of this movie want Miles to succeed at everything that he does because he seems like such a good kid, right? And he seems relatable, and that relatability makes us makes him endearing to us, and I think it makes for a captivating uh, captivating character. I agree. Agree. Thank you. You're also welcome. Me. Uncle Aaron gets a text souring his mood and says they need to leave. As they do, a glowing spider labeled Alchemex 42 lands on the spray paint cans and bites Miles' hand. I love that scene because it they they play the animation so dramatically yep. as soon as the spider like right before the spider bites, it's like <laughs> loud music, bright colors. The bite goes into Miles' skin. All of the the venom goes through his veins and like multiplies his cells. And then you, it it flashes into miles looking at the spider, like, okay. And just slaps it. (laughs) It's it's not a big deal whatsoever. It's playing up for him to like contort and feel pain as his body changes. Like, spider bit me. (laughs) That's annoying. (laughs) Right. I would have freaked out a lot more than he did. I hate spider. Oh yeah. Me too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I know you do. Which is funny, because I also hate spiders, but I love Spider-Man. I know, right? It's weird. It's so weird. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, Miles has a restless night of sleep and wakes up with his radioactive spider powers starting to manifest. Miles is now taller and also has heightened senses, including the film using a clever trope of showing his thoughts as comic book style thought bubbles. It's so good. I love it. As Miles struggles to deal with the heightened sense, he runs into New Girl, who introduces her introduces herself as Gwanda. <laughs> I'm from Africa, South Africa, um. <laughs> but I don't have an accent because I was raised here. <laughs> My name's Wanda. No G. <laughs> uh, Miles attempts to do the shoulder touch, shoulder touch, but just ends up with his hand stuck to Gwanda's shoulder. <laughs> Unable to release. He's eventually stuck to her hair, and a nurse is forced to cut it in order to separate them, angering Gwanda. A security guard tries to confront Miles about sneaking out the night before. Angering Gwanda is a... uh, (laughs) I played bass for angering Gwanda in high school. (laughs) So did angry Gwanda. (laughs) Yeah. I guess she played drums. Yeah. And as Miles attempts to escape, he continues to struggle with his new senses, new stickiness, and super strength. He eventually stumbles on his roommate's Spider-Man comic and starts to wonder if there can be two Spider-Men. The comic Miles finds is literally Spider-Man's first appearance in Amazing Fantasy number 15. So I had this comic. Um, They used to sell these toys, and it was a toy. It was like a... um, like a figure of the comic book hero. And then behind them, you would get the first issue of whatever the comic they were in. And I oh, had that cool. of Spider-Man. It was Spider-Man. It was like a little statue and you would put Spider-Man and it was like a brick mm-hmm. wall. You would put them on and then you would get the first issue, which is, it was like a reprint. Obviously I'm not getting a, right. a legitimate copy of a, um, no, I thought that's what you were saying at first. <laughs> and I was real excited. No, 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 no. I did not have amazing fantasy number 15. I had like a reprint mm-hmm. of it, but I still had it. And um, I had no idea that he came from, like, an anthology series, and he wasn't really, like, right. he didn't always just have his own book. He was just, like, mm-hmm. in somewhere, and somebody was like, oh, this is it's a good idea. Let's keep popular. going. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, his roommate, at one point, just has a drink on that comic book, and he just needs to just step off. They were roommates. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Which is interesting because in the comics, uh, in the Ultimate Spider-Man comic, Gank Lee and Miles are friends before he gets powers. They're like best friends beforehand. Um, and in mm-hmm. here, it looks like they're trying to position it to where... Is that Gank Lee? Afterwards. I think that's who that's supposed to be. Okay. I think he's credited as Gankly. Is yeah. he? Oh, okay. I thought he was just... So. I'm going to look it up. I didn't know he had any lines. Y'all keep talking. <laughs> He'd be credited. I believe that is supposed to be Gankly. Because he yeah, ends up finding out he's... Well. he's. They like have like a moment at the end, right? Where they like look at each other yes. and they're like, yeah. bros now. I think that's supposed to be Gankly. Yeah, I don't think he ever talks, but I'll, I'm going to try to look it up. No, he does not talk. You can uh, keep talking while I look but it he's up. But uh, he's very Ned Leeds-y. Uh, in the comics. Yes. Uh, Miles makes his yeah, way. I, I Go t- ahead. Oh, I took Ned Leeds as be- basically being, taking the name Ned Leeds and putting on film Gank Lee yeah. in the Peter Parker circle. It's, it's just another universe. In the Peter circle? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Miles makes his way back to the spot where he was bitten to investigate the spider and is interrupted by a rumble in the distance. He, in, he goes to investigate the sound and stumbles on a massive battle between Spider-Man and the Green Goblin on top of a gigantic super collider. There's a scene I really like here where Miles walks in and there's all the glass. There's like a glass wall. And he like looks down and then suddenly it says, look out. It's it, such a cool way to show Spider Sense. Miles Tingle. His Miles Tingle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I'm glad you said that because I was about to interrupt you and talk about how much I like that. Yeah, I just think they do so many. And the, the cool part about this movie is that we've seen a lot of these things before, right? Like, we know what Spider-Sense is. We know some of the mm-hmm. Spider-Man lore. But the way that it is presented is so original that you, you can't help but love it. Yep. Mm-hmm. Spider-Man establishes he's trying to stop the Goblin from opening a portal to another dimension and destroying Brooklyn. But Norman Osborn explains it's not up to him. When Miles starts to fall from his safe spot, Spider-Man swings in to save him. The two trigger one another's spider sense, and Peter recognizes Miles as being like himself, meaning he is not the only Spider-Man, and offers to train him after saving the day. Spider-Man leaves Miles and goes to destroy the Collider, but a surprise from being, but a surprise from behind by the Prowler stopping him. The Kingpin arrives in a control booth, telling Spider-Man the Collider cost him a fortune and has it activated. The Collider opens up five separate dimensions. The energy rippling across New York causes an earthquake and bizarre convergence events across the different dimensions. The Green Goblin continues to attack Spider-Man and pushes him into the Collider beam to Kingpin's dismay. This causes the Collider to overload and a massive energy blast rocks the chamber. Miles finds Green Goblin dead and Spider-Man alive in the rubble. Spidey assures Miles he will get up since he always gets up and gives him a thumb drive, he says, will overload the Collider and cause it to explode, telling him he needs Miles' help. He tells Miles if the Collider activates again, New York will be destroyed, and makes Miles promise to destroy it. Kingpin, Tombstone, and Prowler arrive, and Miles hides. Kingpin removes Peter Parker's mask, and Parker taunts Wilson Fisk, telling him he knows what Fisk is trying to do, and that the Collider won't bring them back. Angry, the Kingpin smashes Spider-Man's chest with all his might, killing him. The group Damn. notices Miles. R.I.P. Chris Pine. I know. I gotta say real quick, just that I 
I know he's only in like two scenes and then he has the song at the end, but mm-hmm. Chris Pine is a really good Spider-Man. Yeah. Yes. He's it's a like really a little good... tease. He, for this film to work, he had to die, but that segment with him is just so good. Yeah. Like I want a Chris Pine Spider-Man spinoff film. And that's one of the great things about animation is that I don't, I don't think Chris Pine would be a good Peter Parker in live action. I, right. uh, and I, I think he's, he's too old. Not that he's old, but you know, I, I think he's too old to play Peter Parker. Um, he doesn't really look like Peter Parker, mm-hmm. um, but the kind of actor that he is, his voice and mm-hmm. and his his sense of comic timing, but also he's you know a very talented actor. Like listen to him, it's like oh he is perfect. Like he is a perfect you know for an older Peter Parker. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think the. Um... I don't think Jake Johnson would also be a great live action Peter Parker <laughs> either, right? Like, <laughs> right. <laughs> no, but no. he works great in this context. Yeah, but he's, again, yeah. He yeah. And that, that's, animation's great. Right. The group notices Miles and the Prowler gives chase, with Miles barely able to escape through the subway tunnels. Shaken, Miles returns to his home to his parents' surprise. The two comfort him, but when Miles asks Jefferson if he really hates Spider Man, Jefferson reassures him that he does not hate Spider-Man. No, he doesn't. No, he yeah. assures him that he does hate Spider-Man. Well, the notes are wrong then. No, they're not. It just says there's not a not there. Oh, you're right. Uh-huh. Well, the notes are right. I'm wrong. File deleted. <laughs> I read that wrong. My bad. And then gets yelled at by his wife. Well, yeah. <laughs> he knows how I feel about Spider-Man. As Miles lays in bed, the news reports the death of Spider-Man, first seen by Jefferson and Rio, then by the entire city. And I got to say that the Jefferson reacts, you know, he is horrified. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's a combination of, I mean, just because he doesn't like Spider-Man doesn't mean that he wanted him to die. Right. And the, also the reveal that Spider-Man is 26. Presumably mm-hmm. he's been doing this for 10 years which means that he's realizing that Miles is the age that yep. sp- that Peter Parker was when he started as Spider-Man, and I think that there's a connection there in his mind. Agreed. It's probably a lot to take in, though, too, if you've... Like, it, it's not that Jefferson has, like, a seething hatred of Spider-Man. Like, right. he doesn't have, like, a shrine in his closet that he throws daggers at or anything. But <laughs> yeah. to say that you're not a fan of somebody and then they die... And you find out that probably the whole time you've hated them, they're like a very young person trying to do what's right. You know what I mean? Like, it's probably one of those things that would really weigh heavily on you. And I think that that very small detail in that scene where he covers his mouth, Mm -hmm. like in shock, Mm -hmm. I think I think it kind of dawns on him like, wow, I was maybe a little harsh on on this person, like. Maybe I shouldn't have have thought these negative thoughts about him. Because he he comes around rather quick in this movie. For me, I don't know about you guys, and I'm jumping ahead quite a bit, but I wasn't 100% positive that he was going to be okay with Spider-Man by the end of the movie. I thought it might be a plot point for future movies that their tension kind of stuck around. But he comes around pretty quick, and I think maybe this scene is why. Is one big reason why. Obviously, you know, he gets saved in yeah. the end, but yeah. At a massive outdoor public funeral, I'm sorry. While Mary Jane Watson Parker gives interviews about her dead husband, Miles buys an ill-fitting Spider-Man costume from Stanley. 
Oh, Be- God. And I don't know if this was... Was this the first... Did this come out before Captain Marvel? Yes. Then this was the first Stanley cameo after he died. Yep, and it hit hard. And it hit very hard. I'm going to miss him. The first words he says. Yep. <laughs> like, <laughs> right, and like, I remember that, and it's like, oh, you don't realize. Or, or when, when we're making this film, we didn't realize we we're going to miss you. It's just... <laughs> uh-huh. And, and the fact that this was the first Spider-Man movie to come out after both Stanley and Steve Ditko had died. Yeah. You know, the, the, the two creators of this character. Um, and I am i don't think I'm speaking out of turn to say that Spider-Man is probably Stan Lee's favorite character that he created. I think yeah. that's probably a fair assumption. Yeah. Uh, so that... Mm. Yep. Just a, a scene that... To, you know, someday, you know, when I show my hypothetical future kids, it's not going to hit them the way it hit me because... You know, they'll just be like, oh, it's that guy that's in all the Marvel movies. Right. Um, I was like, no, but when you know that this was the first cameo after he died. Yep. In, you know, his, you know, his character. And it's a great uh, cameo. And it was just written as a good comedic cameo that then. Yeah. Because of timing ended up being a comedic cameo that also just hurts. Yeah. Uh, at a massive outdoor public funeral. Mary Jane eulogizes her husband with Miles in attendance. When MJ says, we are all Spider-Man, Miles takes it to heart. Now, Peaches. Oh. Rumor has it. (laughs) You were a big crybaby during this movie. Hey, are you? Whoa, whoa, whoa. (laughs) I mean, you're not wrong, but name calling. Come on. (laughs) Make him cry. Yeah, right now, <laughs> on the podcast. Soundlord here with a warning for Peaches. Go ahead and skip to the 59-minute mark. You'll thank me later. And now, back to the podcast. Okay, uh, yeah, I... So it's weird because this movie is so, like, colorful and fun, and it's like you're watching a comic book happen, and, like, overall, it seems on the surface like a very, like fun and like stress relieving and happy movie and it is somehow but at the same time for me i don't know about for you guys i can really only speak for myself here but there are so many moments in it that just make me feel all sorts of sadness and sometimes it's not it, it's never really a bad sadness it's sadness that comes from something powerful that happened um but i cry like one to four, maybe five times every time that I watch this movie. Um, and it's not like a full on ugly cry, but like water is coming out of my face. Um, and I think it just has some moments in it that it has some moments in it that are just, they're just very pure and they speak to the spider verse characters very well. I think one thing that a lot of the spider verse characters have in common, the ones that end up being superheroes and you kind of get this right before Miles takes control of his powers finally, is that they all have some sort of tragedy embedded in their story that makes them become Spider-Man, right? Um, It's Uncle Ben. It's Peter Parker dying for Gwen. It's the Prowler for Miles. It's not just her dying. I looked this up because I was like, you see sort of the flashes there. So I looked up the comic. In the Spider-Gwen comic, Peter Parker is like a bullied kid, so he creates the lizard serum and becomes Lizard Man. 
um, and Gwen has to take him down and inadvertently kills him in the oh, process. That's, that's even sadder. Even worse, so, now, right? so let me add a sixth yeah. time that I might cry <laughs> when that's being explained. But I don't know. For me, like it gets really personal, and I don't. I'm not going to get too detailed about my own life on this podcast. But specifically, the one one or two times that I'm guaranteed to cry in this movie is in the in the scenes where Peter B. Parker tells Miles that he's not going to know when he's ready. He just needs to take a leap of faith. And for me, you know, I I reflect on that really strongly because. You know, I have I have a couple things in my brain that I wish I would have had the strength to take a leap on. And so when I hear that 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 dialogue, it like like it immediately hits. And so it's relatable and it's true to the spider characters. But there's a lot of other moments, too, besides those ones that hit me personally. Um you know, after Peter Parker dies, he immediately puts his faith in Miles to get the job done. And Miles, going along with that theme of spider people feeling responsible, is like, yeah, I'm going to do this. I made a promise to Spider-Man. And that that has moments that are, like, bittersweet. Um, and when Aaron dies, you know, that's, that's the tragic story that he needed to become Spider-Man. So it's sad. It's bittersweet. Um, and so there's just a lot in this movie that is really well done to make it a feel-good movie, but there's also a few things here and there that really humanize all the characters and make them relatable in a way that I guess makes me a crybaby. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no shame. It's no not. Shame. It's there's nothing wrong with crying. I agree. I think we have all cried at least one of these movies that we've talked about right. in our in the course yeah. of this podcast i think and this yeah. section if not multiple this section right here is also because you, you were talking about or how this film is tailored both to everyone but also just especially tailored to spider-man fans and this moment where everyone is reacting to the news like we are those people we those of us who are spider-man nerds we are those people reacting to the news like i i had two scenes of Chris Pine Spider-Man and I'm emotional over, Oh, he's gone. And you know, another one of my favorite comic book characters is here eulogizing him. And it's just, it, it, it my reaction in the theater was the reaction of those people. Cause I thought he was going to, I thought they were going to copy the comic book. He's going to mentor miles through this film. It's going to be, and then it's just, he dies saving the world and, or trying to save the world. And then everyone has to react to it. And it's done. It's done in a way that really, I, I assume it's emotional regardless, but when this is a character you care about, it's just extra emotional to exactly what you said. And he does in the comic book too. He doesn't mentor him. What? Say that? Well, uh, I'm talking about, I'm sorry. I'm talking about the crossover when Miles went to 616. I thought they were going to be copying that. Oh, okay. yes. Yeah, sure. yeah, 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 yeah. Um, which I guess they kind of did, but instead Peter went to Miles in this case. Peter went to Miles, yes. mm -hmm. which was what happens in the Ultimate Comic eventually. Right. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I misspoke. I meant when Miles went over to 616 temporarily. Um, Man, I just briefly skimmed what my feelings are on that scene, and I'm like yep. trying not to cry. You might need to give me a second. <laughs> <laughs> my goodness. And then another thing oh. is they play this ju juxtaposition so well of seeing this Spider-Man you know, in his early twenties and he makes a point of saying, I 
every day I love being Spider-Man. And then you get Peter B. Parker shortly after this, who got to the point that he no longer loved being Spider-Man. It's more like a duty and an obligation. You know, those, those 12 years later, we get depressed. My life is ruined Spider-Man. And, you know, Peter B. Parker is, you know, he still has his responsibility and wants to save the world, but also he's ready to just, because he doesn't want to take that leap to try and repair things. He doesn't want to face his demons. He's ready to die because that means the, uh, it's over. I'm about so, to go off camera yeah, for a minute. Yeah, yeah. You keep talking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to, I don't want to get too rough I, on it, but it's, I mean, yeah. Peter B. Parker is just depressing put up against the Chris Pine. Now it ends up being a feel good story. He gets there through miles and, you know, miles yeah. turning his words back on him on leap of faith gets Peter B. Parker in a good place. But we see a Peter, uh, uh, Peter Parker, who is really not in a good place. And that's also to everything Peach has just said. It, it's a feel good movie that really has a lot of feels. And I think that's relatable too, uh, mm-hmm. to varying degrees. I mean, may, maybe not to the the level that Peter B has gotten, but uh, although I'm sure many many people can relate to that. But even on a lesser level of, you know, Spider Man loves being Spider Man, and then we see ten years later, you know, when the things go bad, and all of a sudden this thing that you loved is not giving you that joy anymore. And I think that's something a lot of us can relate to, whether it's maybe a job that you had that you love that went sour or uh, or a relationship or a hobby even uh, where after a while and it, it's just not fulfilling you anymore and it starts to, to drag you down. And if you're lucky, you find something that rekindles that spark and reminds you of why you love it in the first place. Um, as, as happens for Peter in this, in watching Miles grow into that. Um, and, and of course he comes to some other realizations. Do I want kids? Yeah. Oh, that's a good (laughs) one. Which, which which is a, which is a great moment when you find that that's one of the things that, that held him back from, or, or soured his relationship with MJ in his universe. Um, but yeah, I, I think, I think what's great about this movie is that it's a great, it's a strong ensemble cast, definitely focused on miles. And then like, as like one a and Peter B Parker is one B um, wait a little bit more to miles. Cause he's our point of view character. Um, but every character in here, like, like all, all the, all the lead characters that really get developed, uh, they all have really relatable stories as, as relatable as a superhero can be. But that is what superhero stories can do so well is that even in these fantastical stories of people who can climb up walls and swing, through uh, across buildings there is a relatable core to them and that's why we love them it's not just the superpowers uh-huh. it's it's the person behind the mask and yeah peach is over here blubbering like a baby yeah remind me to skip this this too. uh segment will you will you splice in a little peaches please uh flip the side b here before I'll, uh, before i start talking about this point i'll uh I'll do that. <laughs> Forward the tape to one hour and nine minutes in, please. Yeah. Uh, Miles reads the pages of Peter Parker learning his new abilities and decides to try out his own. Uh, dressed in the cheap Spider-Man costume, he climbs up a tall building and prepares to jump off as dramatic music crescendos. 
The dramatic music stops as Miles goes down the stairs and finds a shorter bullet. <laughs> what a great sight gag that is to the the stair shot and then looking at the smaller building and then going up those stairs like that. Just it's great. So I mean, in addition to the groundbreaking visuals, they just have, they have such a great uh, eye for quick visual gags mm-hmm. that are very funny too. You know, so they they do the the macro well, but they do the micro really yep. well too. Uh, when he tries to jump, Miles trips on his constantly untied shoelaces. It's a choice, <laughs> and falls to the ground. He survives, but the thumb drive needed to destroy the collider does not. Uh, Robbie, uh, the number 42 is on the ground next to Miles during this scene. You seem to have found a, a trend in this movie. Would you like to let us in? Yeah, this it's weird how this movie on rewatch keeps finding more ways for me to love it. Um, 42 is a significant number, and it showed up. I was definitely aware that it was in this film a bunch, but until rewatching for prep on this and like paying attention to the details. I didn't realize that 42 is in this movie a bunch, like constantly. And to me, 42 is Jackie Robinson's number. Um, it's he's probably Jackie Robinson is probably more tied to his uniform number um, in, you know, the public consciousness than maybe any other athlete ever. Uh, probably more than any other athlete ever. I, Chris, would you disagree? No, I know. I was going to agree. I was just going to say that we probably have people who listen to the show that aren't yeah, baseball go, fans okay. so you might so, yeah so you might want to explain um, jackie robinson so real quick uh jackie robinson was the uh, first uh black major league b- baseball player um he broke the color barrier um it's uh, a, a very important and wonderful social story um not just a sports story uh it took way too long before it happened it was 1947 uh, but his number was 42 um and baseball eventually took them way too long to do this to but baseball eventually retired his number. So part of why the no- is he the only athlete that the entire league retired? Uh, Ninety nine is retired for Wayne Gretzky in the entirety of the NHL. Oh, okay. Um, I NHL is my blind that's, spot, and that's so. not the same. <laughs> that's Wayne Gretzky that. is not the same thing as Jackie. Yeah. Wayne Gretzky was but, just you know better, like correct. the best. Yes. But but Jackie Robinson, that there's like a right great story yes. there. In addition to him being a great um, baseball, player. so every baseball stadium has. 42 in its outfield is a retired number. Um, no, players cannot wear 42. It's retired for all of them because of his importance to the sport. Uh, and it has become a very significant number because of that. And so as I'm seeing 42 in this film, it's making me think of Jackie Robinson because as you know, I spend a significant amount of my life nerding out about Spider-Man. The other part of my life is nerding out about baseball history. Um, and so I thought, well, baseball players can't wear the number 42, except for the days where they all wear the Correct. number 42. One day a year on Jackie Robinson <laughs> Day, the players um, all wear 42, which is super confusing. And I'm going to go ahead and say here on this podcast, I don't love it. Uh, it started as Ken Griffey Jr. His number was 24 out of respect for um, Jackie Robinson. Mm. And I will point out, Ken Griffey Jr. came into the league before Jackie Robinson's number was retired. So he was wearing 24 because he refused to wear Jackie's number, but he wanted to acknowledge it. Uh, and But then one day for Jackie Robinson Day, Ken Griffey Jr. asked, can I wear 42? And baseball said, but this shocks me because of how baseball operates. They said, yeah, sure. And then a bunch of other people copied Ken Griffey Jr. And then it became whole teams wearing 42. And then it just became, hey, this is a great idea. Let's just make every team wear 42. And so now it's, I mean, I love Jackie Robinson. He does not represent to me 
what he represents to Ken Griffey Jr. My barrier to playing base, Major League Baseball in 1946 was my complete lack of athletic talent, not the color of my skin. So well, <laughs> You mean the, your complete lack of being alive in 1946? Yeah, he had no athletic talent. That as well. He was not athletic at all. <laughs> but obviously, Jackie Robinson... He couldn't even pick up a baseball, let alone right, throw Jackie it. Robinson yeah. did not break any barriers for me, so I'm not going to claim that he means the same thing. He hadn't even been pitched yet. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Um, Hey, better, better, better. uh, And so I don't think it's, it's not quite the same for people to be forced to wear that number. Um, That said, I I love Jackie Robinson. I wrote a, one of my favorite papers I wrote in college was um, uh, a story was writing about Jackie Robinson um, through the context of the civil rights movement. We were supposed to pick one one specific moment of the civil right of civil rights in uh, the U.S. in the the mid century, uh, and then extrapolate it to the larger picture. And I chose Jackie Robinson. It was really eye opening and fun to write. Um, I also, you guys know about this. The best way for me to like something is for it to be underrated. And uh, Jackie Robinson, weird as it is, happens to also be underrated. Like people, he was he was the best player in baseball for a while. Like he he was a dominant baseball player. And people kind of forget that he wasn't just good and broke the color barrier. He was bananas great and broke the color barrier. Um, and is the kind of player I like, a, a second baseman who's a great base runner and a, and a good contact hitter. But okay, so I love Jackie Robinson. And so the number 42 just kept making me think of Jackie Robinson. But I thought certainly it's just a coincidence. So I looked up why is 42 in this film a bunch. It is because of Jackie Robinson. They thought it was perfect for to use that number um, because, uh, you know, Miles Morales is also uh, in a way breaking a color barrier as uh, a um, person of color as Spider-Man because the film is set in Brooklyn, which is where Jackie Robinson was a Brooklyn Dodger. So that's where he broke the color Mm -hmm. barrier. Uh, So the, the number has a lot of um, relevance. And so they are trying to reference Jackie Robinson in this film. And there's a bunch of sections, Uh, you know, it's on the spider. The spider is Alchemex 42. Um, when Miles falls on the ground here, the numbers 42 fall on the ground next to him. Uh, there's a Jackie Robinson poster in Miles' dorm. The lottery ball that represents Miles winning the lottery to get into this into Visions Academy uh, is number 42. The occupancy of the bus they ride to Fisk Tower is 42. Um, it's on a street sign there on 42nd Street at one point. They use 42 a bunch in this. And so it's this movie that I already love. All these great things they're doing... Uh, with Spider-Man. And then on top of that, it's constantly referencing one of my favorite old baseball players. And so it was just, just really, really cool. Um, and I know that I'm alone on that, but I ne- definitely needed to talk about another factor of why this movie is perfect. This movie is so good. And um, Peaches brought up a point when he, uh, in our group chat before, while he like read all of our show notes and how we all took wildly different things away from this movie. And the fun part is they're all true. They're all positive and that this movie just it does so well because it speaks to everyone but it speaks to them on their level right. what i take from this movie could be different from what you take from this movie and that's okay and that's the movie's intention it's for you to relate to the movie on your terms not necessarily the movie's terms and that's a difficult thing for a movie to do but even just something as simple as the number 42 can appeal to somebody like robbie who is weirdly a baseball spider-man fanatic not that that's weird, but like it's weirdly mm-hmm. specific that yeah, that that absolutely. is something that just pointed right at you. Yep. Uh, Miles visits Peter Parker's grave to apologize and admit he failed. As Miles ta- as Miles talks to Peter, a stranger appears behind him. 
Surprised, Miles flashes another new power by shocking the stranger with a touch, knocking him out, and discovers a slightly different Peter Parker in a Spider-Man suit and sweatpants. Uh, with another cutaway and another claim of, all right, let's do this one last time, we get Peter B. Parker explaining his similar but slightly different life and origin story. This is my favorite one of yes. these. Um, I like them all, but yeah. this one specifically because he, it's clear he like, they like make it clear from his character that he like over exaggerates and like, like kind of not lies. I mean, like he like lies a little bit, but he like changes the viewpoint of certain events. Like when he's like, I took it like a champ and he's like crying in the shower and, like, <laughs> with pizza. <laughs> and he's like always wearing the spider suit. Like even in the shower, he's just like right. laying in bed. He's just in the spider suit. <laughs> he's like, I'm doing doing crunches, getting getting buff, and he's got like his belly out, and he's eating pizza. God, I've never seen a more relatable mm-hmm. scene. I I know. <laughs> I'm in my Spider-Man suit right now. Hey, <laughs> you guys know that I'm lying, but the rest of the people don't know that. No, they don't know we that you're. Tell. We won't tell that you're completely naked right now. Yeah, uh, that's what he calls a Spider-Man suit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Because all that webby be spitting. Hold on. I won't uh, stop till I get in this man, dude. Uh, the sweater has been doing it for 22 years. Man, we're all broke. We're all broke in a different uh, way. Now we've all cried on this podcast. <laughs> I'm going to cry again when I have to edit this. <laughs> Uh, this Spider-Man has been doing it for 22 years, eventually making bad business decisions, losing Mary Jane over his fear of having children. TGI Spidey. What a great... I noticed that this time for the first time. Who would want to eat at a spider-themed restaurant? Yo, let me tell you, if that was a real restaurant, Absolutely. I would go there today. Absolutely. <laughs> well, if it was TGI Spideys, yeah. But if you are if you don't know anything about Spider-Man and you just see a TGI Spideys, you're like, <laughs> oh, hell no. no. Are the pancakes going to have legs? <laughs> <laughs> what an oddly specific fear. I, round things are served at restaurants i don't know is it a burger with legs is it a pancake with legs is it a, is it a scotch egg with legs i don't know <laughs> thank god it's spidey so i just had to say it out loud to hear how ridiculous it sounds thank god it's spidey <laughs> Co-worker that would call it the best restaurant in the city. <laughs> yes, we do. Yeah, we do. Um, <coughs> what other spider-themed restaurants could we have? Oh man, Spidey Cheeses this is short for Spider Entertainment Cheese, of course. Um, <laughs> spider Bees Friendly oh, Neighborhood man. Grill. <laughs> spider Bees. <laughs> oh boy. I don't know if any of them work as well as TGI Spideys. <laughs> no. yeah. TGI Spideys, I think, is the, they, they probably pitched a hundred of them. Yeah. We're not going to top who won because they sure, they surely picked right. the best one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's see here. Where were we? Uh, you were at this Spider Man's been doing it for 22 years, eventually making bad business decisions. We cut you off at business decisions. 
Losing Mary Jane over his fear of having children, having to cope with the death of Aunt May, and sinking into depression. Over seahorses. <laughs> Which They're is made for life. They made for life. Can you imagine two seahorses? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> The montage ends with Peter in costume being sucked through a rift caused by the super collider and into Miles' dimension, then goes to his alternate self's grave to find answers, where he is zapped by Miles. Police arrive, and Miles is forced to make an escape using Peter's web shooters. Uh, Miles takes Peter back to his Uncle Aaron's apartment and ties him up to interrogate him. This is this whole scene is strangely familiar to the scene in Spider-Man Homecoming where Tom Holland's Peter Parker ties up Aaron Davis or like uh, sort of like holds up Aaron Davis behind his car. Like that these two interactions are very similar. Um <laughs> As Peter wakes up, the two recognize one another's abilities via spider sense, as the other Peter was able to do. Miles realizes Peter is from another dimension and asks him for training. Another dimension, another dimension. Uh, Peter escapes and refuses to train Miles, but as he tries to run, his body distorts and causes him to fall. Parker surmises his body does not like being in a different dimension. Miles explains the collider, and Peter intends to destroy it and return to his own dimension, but discovers the thumb drive is broken. Peter goes to find where he can make a new one, and Miles guilts Parker into bringing him along. After a burger, <laughs> discovering the location of Alchemex Lab, a name Miles recognizes from the collider room, the two Spider-Men take a bus to the Hudson Valley to create a new override key, calling it a goober. I will also be talking about the soundtrack a lot, and this song... Mm-hmm. It's so- as they are, <laughs> is so good. And the way it cuts off at the cape, <laughs> and it's a no on the cape. Wait, which which song? Um, I forget the. It's like some sort of eighties style. Oh, it's Saint. Okay, okay, yes, this is what oh, I want to okay. talk about. Okay, it's Saint Elmo's Fire, and here's a, a depressing bit of trivia for you. So Saint Elmo's Fire, Man in Motion, in parentheses, um, might be the other way around. I don't remember uh, from the movie Saint Elmo's Fire. Uh, they used it. Apparently, they got the original. They wrote an alternate universe version of the song called "Saint Ulrich's Fire." Got the original singer to record it, but legal reasons kept it from being in the film. So there is a recording of an alternate universe version of Saint Elmo's Fire that they made for this movie that because, cannot be released because Miles' so universe is full okay. of alternate things like the New York Red Sox and golfer Steph Curry. <laughs> Uh, I get sick about the New York Red Sox that almost affect, <laughs> that almost affected my score for this movie, but I'm gonna let it slide. Um, let's real quick. Just let's, I wrote down a couple of the great alternate universe. Well, like it, instead of the NYPD, it's the PDNY. Mm-hmm. I think Coca Cola was called Coca Soda. Yes, with a that's what K. it is. Um, um, there is a zombie movie called From Dusk Till Sean. Um, <laughs> What a there's good a bro- combo, too. What a great Venn diagram of that. Yeah, yeah. There's a uh, um, John Mulaney. This is a great cameo you know, reference here. John Mulaney and Nick Kroll have a Broadway show called Hi, Hello. <laughs> um, as opposed to Oh, Hello. Um, yeah, there's all these weird, you know, just the ultimate universe is Red strange, man, group. man. The Red Man Group, yeah. Some And there's yeah, some... There, uh, a lot of these things. There's some Seth Rogen comedy about a being a jockey or something it's yeah peter 
clearly not in his peak physical shape, explains to Miles his plan to infiltrate the lab, download the important information to destroy the collider, and steal a bagel. Which we get (laughs) that wonderful meme that has been used now with Spider-Man thinking and then Miles thinking yes. behind Spider-Man thinking dressed as my Ma- dressed as Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. Of, of so, all the yeah. uh, memes with two Spider-Man in it, it's in my top two. <laughs> That's true. Uh, Miles is, a- <laughs> they're both in this movie. Miles is able yeah. to point out the head scientist to Peter, recognizing her as the, Frumpy scientist from the film in his physics class. Uh, again? Again. You frumped her again? <laughs> hmm. He wishes. Uh, Peter makes Miles stay behind his lookout, with Miles complaining about getting stuck with janky old broke hobo Spider-Man. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's got the best outfit. I was saying to my roommates when, we, when I was watching this yesterday that if I ever were to do a cosplay for like a Comic-Con or something, that is the the cosplay I would go with, with right. the Spider-Man suit just in the torso, sweatpants, one converse on my right foot, one work, bo- one work boot on my left foot, and a jacket. <laughs> yeah. It's the best costume ever. Miles sees Kingpin and Tombstone arrive and runs in to warn Peter, finding him crawling through the ductwork. The two see the head scientist warning Kingpin the Collider could open a black hole under Brooklyn, but the Kingpin informs her she has 24 hours to get the Collider running again. Watch, he's going to say you have 24 hours. (laughs) You've got 24 hours. (laughs) The two sneak into her office, and Peter prepares to hack her computer, while Miles struggles to turn off his wall crawling. When the scientist comes back, both discover Miles is able to turn invisible, Another new power. We also get Miles singing that song to get off the roof. That that song that slaps that should not be spoken ill against. Uh, <laughs> the head scientist is amazed and excited to see Spider-Man and starts to investigate him as Peter tries to charm her while Miles hacks the computer. That's not really this- hacking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, did that desktop trigger anyone else? Yes. Okay. Yes. It was pretty rough, yeah. Uh, The scientist pushes Peter into a chair and restrains him and deduces he is from another dimension and his cells are decaying. She tells him if he stays in this dimension too long, his cells will decay and he will die and that she can't wait to see it. Peter asks the doctor what her name is and tells him Dr. Olivia Octavius as she takes off her lab coat to reveal (gasps) four... In pl- inflatable prehensile arms. Peter asks her if her friends call her Doc Ock. She lets him know her friends call her Liv, but her enemies call her Doc Ock. What that was a cool reveal. Moment. Mm-hmm. That was I did I didn't see it coming. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Spider-Man movies always surprising me. I don't really know how to segue this, so the notes just say Robbie discuss how this film lets you have your cake and eat it too. So Robbie, talk about your cake and eating it, I guess. <laughs> so but Okay, because I wanted to talk about mostly how great this reveal is. So, Chris, you were already talking about it. Like, I want to hear you talk about it more. Like, your reaction to this. Oh, yeah. No, just... I just assumed that she was a a scientist character. Mm -hmm. I didn't expect her to be anyone. I I think I was watching the movie, trying to figure out who she was, going like, I don't know if I remember 
Right. You know, like I wonder. I wonder what comic she's from because I was assuming she must have had something. But I was like, oh, but I'm not really recognizing her. Mm-hmm. I'm not familiar with that one. So when she said her name was Olivia Octavius, I was like, oh crap, that's what she is. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> it was so great. I just right. I just assumed it was going to be the 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 common trope of the you know just following orders scientist. She was gonna, she was going to be well meaning, but this was her technology, and the kingpin used it for ill ends, and you know that's in everything. And so I thought that's what she was going to be. And then she's messing with Peter Parker, and I'm definitely buying that she's just excited to see Spider Man and not thinking you know through what any of this means. And then then she says uh, Olivia Octavius, and I just oh my god. <laughs> And it's obviously so clever because, and this is where I'm coming at, the use of the multiverse in this allows you to do creative things and take creative licenses without necessarily being, you know, necessarily saying, well, we're going to be, we're just going to do our own thing and be completely unique. Because Peter B. Parker is basically, he's not officially the 616 Peter Parker, but he's basically the 616 Peter Parker. Um, And then... You have, you're in the universe of this blonde-haired, blue-eyed Peter Parker, and he's got these interesting spins on all these classic Spider-Man things. Uh, And so you get to definitely see elements of, you know, the, if you're an Ultimate Spider-Man fan, you get to see some Ultimate Spider-Man in this film. If you're a a classic mainstream Spider-Man fan, you get a lot of that in this film. And then you also get a bunch of original stuff that doesn't feel like they're trying to, like be cute it feels like they're saying look at how things are different in different universes and i think they do a great job of it and and man this reveal is just so good um and and i think there's a couple other examples of it um i definitely obviously didn't see this coming um what was this one uh sorry um i wasn't prepared (laughs) but everyone's just so good and it doesn't doesn't just focus on one character and it gives you all these little things and I just like how it manages to give you a lot of different stuff. I'm now rambling. I got distracted. Um, it gives you a lot of different stuff without necessarily feeling like the universe you know and love doesn't exist. And I just love that. And it's just such a cool twist to say, oh, here's female Doc Ock. And I think that's fun to see. Mostly, though, yeah, this reveal was great. I wanted to stop and talk about the reveal. Okay. Yeah. So say... Let me give you a hypothetical. Say we had, this movie hadn't come out, right? Mm-hmm. And you had Spider-Man Homecoming and you had a female Doctor character and that character ended up being Doc Ock. Would that have been seen by the masses as a positive thing? Probably not. I think The, the masses, this, no. I think the way this movie is done, it works better than it would have in that setting. It's more palatable to certain audiences that way, definitely. I think so. Not based on the masses, yeah. Based on the masses' response to Captain Marvel before right. Captain Marvel even came out, I assume that there would be a lot of bigotry. Yeah, that's entirely possible. Mm. Kind of like if someone said, "Hey, let's have this uh, very popular black actor play Spider-Man." <laughs> How dare they? Yeah. Um, Also, I'll say as a side note, this movie also helped me like Homecoming more, if that makes sense. So part of of what I disliked about Homecoming was I was just waiting for a movie that felt like the Spider-Man movie I wanted. 
And then they gave me this Spider-Man movie that I wanted. And it's made it easier for me to go back to other Spider-Man movies that aren't quite exactly the the Spider-Man movie I wanted. Because, hey, look, they gave me this one. Also, the PS4 Spider-Man gave me the Spider-Man movie I wanted. So Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it really did. Yeah, it's hard to argue with that. Uh, <clears throat> still invisible, but unable to hack the computer, Miles steals the entire computer and starts to run while Peter fights this Dimensions female version of Dr. Octopus. As Miles runs, he unknowingly bumps into Gwanda, disguised as an Alchemax scientist. Peter escapes Doc Ock and catches up to Miles, and the two try to escape out of the cafeteria as Peter grabs a bagel. The off-duty scientists respond to the bagel theft by leaping up and pointing out guns to start firing. Except for one of them that puts her head disappointedly and stressed out into her hands because she's sick of this shit. And I love that one of them goes, he stole a bagel! (laughs) Uh, The bagel gag just keeps growing. And then when Miles hits a scientist in the head with a bagel, the the automatopoeia of the strike says bagel. Yeah. <laughs> maybe my favorite visual gag in any animated movie i think it's mine it might be also, it is it i laughed so hard also when i paused it to take a picture of it i realized the guy's face is also hilarious <laughs> <laughs> uh, peter hands miles a web shooter and tries to teach him how to swing literally using the word thwip to describe it as the two mm-hmm. escape to the woods, pursued by Octavius. Flip and release. They are nearly free when Peter glitches out again, falls, and Doc Ock is able to grab the computer. Suddenly, a spider person in a black, pink, and white costume appears, kicks Doc Ock, and takes the computer. She removes her mask to reveal Gwanda, correcting Miles and telling him her name actually is Gwen. Gwen Stacy from the universe where she was bitten by the spider instead of her boyfriend Peter tells us, all right, people, let's start at the beginning one last time. With similar visual language from different details, Gwen talks about her own radioactive origins, the highlights of her life as the one and only spider woman for the past two years, and the death of her best friend, Peter Parker. In flashback, Gwen fights her own universe's Dr. Octopus in a super collider room when a similar portal opens above her and takes her not only to Miles, New York, but also a week in the past. She explains that she followed her spider sense to Miles' school and has been following him since. The three are able to escape under a hail of gain. Gain fire? Gunfire. Gain fire. So, about this moment, like, this movie's perfect, so anything I can say about this movie is nitpicky. But I find it strange that Peter Parker is able to see the alternate universe version version of his girlfriend whose death he feels like he caused without skipping a beat. Like he feels nothing like there's nothing about it. And, and Gwen, he Gwen never, also. that universe, Peter never says that that happened. We don't know that that happened. I to guess him. that's possible. I guess you're going to say that Gwen Stacy didn't date peter parker in that universe um yeah maybe true but then gwen is also yeah. seeing the uh alternate universe version of her best friend who died more recently than peter parker's ex-girlfriend or not ex it was his girlfriend died it just seems interesting to me that they didn't explore i don't think it needed to be a big thing it was just interesting to me that yeah the emotions of them seeing each other wasn't explored at all it is explored in the comics when they have them cross over um, yeah i just thought that was some small missed opportunity I mean, I just think that 
that Peter is more emotionally scarred uh, at that stage in his life. And so he acts more emotionally towards things. And I think uh, Peaches is right. I think they just don't touch on the whole Gwen thing because yeah. most likely they're just like, considering it that it didn't happen to that specific Peter. Possibly. But that's why he is a bumbling baboon when he speaks to <laughs> Mary Jane. Well, yeah, and it might just be that that's not the trauma that he's currently going through. Like the trauma that he is currently experiencing is that he failed the relationship with the person that he cares about, which at that point is Mary Jane. So he probably is not in a mindset of here's another problem. Emily, add that add that to the list. Like, you know, I I know all of us have probably experienced some form of trauma that kind of takes over and when that happens it's really the only thing you think of yeah and maybe going to a universe where you have died seeing a different universe's version of your high school girlfriend isn't going to be nearly as upsetting as seeing your own grave possibly yeah yeah as the kingpin angrily watches the spider people escape, he flashes back to his wife Vanessa and son Richard walking in on him threatening Spider-Man. Horrified, the two run away and die in a car accident. Doc Ock returns and explains the multiple spider people is a good sign as it proves the collider works and Fisk will be able to get his family back. On a bus ride back to New York City, Gwen tells Miles it's nice to not be alone as a spider person and also says she knows a place they can make a new goober. The three find themselves outside of the iconic Parker residence from the comics and Peter clearly panicked. That is a line where Peter is in front of the of Aunt May's house when he says, mm-hmm. I'm not ready for this. That's a line directly taken from the Ultimate Spider-Man comic with that exact scene of Peter yep. and Miles being in front of Aunt May's house and him saying, I'm not ready for this. Also, now that you say that, I just realized I had it backwards. The comic I was thinking of was Peter going to Ultimate Universe. That's what I was thinking of in my memory. Got it. Which he does. The same one you're referencing because I realized I know that too. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yes. Uh, May Parker comes out thinking the three are mourners before recognizing Peter. She's immediately able to realize he is from another dimension, and though sad about the still fresh loss of her nephew, she immediately snaps to action when they when told they need help making a new goober. And kicks her Aunt door. May takes the group to her nephew's underground spider bunker, where they have access to all his supplies, and she informs them they are not outnumbered, asking if they thought they were the only ones who thought to come here. Spider Noir living in black and white and wind. Uh, Penny Parker and Spider-Ham all descend from the rafters and give their one-last-time stories. Spider-Noir is a 1933 private eye. Penny Parker is in 3145 and has a psychic link with a spider who lives in a robot built by his father. Spider-Ham was originally a spider that was bitten by a radioactive pig. (laughs) I love that. I love that they kept that. And I love that they're all saying their story at the same time. Yeah, and he says pig like just slightly after they're done saying spider. After, yes. uh, all three experience the same sort of quantum tunnel as the rest and end up here. Guess it's not that long. <laughs> yeah. uh, this this scene is also incredibly visually striking. And Chris, you wanted to touch on some of the visuals uh-huh. in this movie. Oh, yeah. This movie... And we, we talked about uh, Robbie went through a lot of the uh, the animated in, the animation innova- innovations that, that was really difficult to say. 
Wow. You did it. Uh, uh, I did it. Yay me. <laughs> but Robbie went through a lot, a lot of that stuff uh, early in the show. But I remember seeing the first trailer for this. And I, I've got the social media receipts to prove it. But I said that if this movie was half as good as it looked visually, that it was going to be a shoo-in for the Oscar. Because it is so rare right now for a major studio to actually take a risk and do a completely new animation style. So much mm-hmm. animated stuff, unfortunately, looks the same right now. I was mm-hmm. talking to Angela about this the other day um, in regards to Disney, and that I all of their computer animated character designs look like they could all be in the same movie. And maybe you could say, maybe not all of them, but the princesses, at least. Uh, the characters from Frozen look like the characters from Tangled looks like uh, we, we saw the art for um, Raya and the Last Dragon uh, which I, I have hopes for it to be a good movie I mean we haven't seen any trailers or anything yet but again the character designs are very similar it, it's like there's a house style now not that there's necessarily anything wrong with that but like a Disney way of looking yeah and you know Disney everyone always look. talks about the <laughs> Yes, yes, like a Disney look. And uh, people talk about the DreamWorks face, <laughs> you know, how every DreamWorks character, like, raises one eyebrow and smiles with half of their mouth. You know, that's, <laughs> that's the DreamWorks face. <laughs> uh, DreamWorks character does not change facial yeah. expressions. <laughs> Thank you guys for picking oh, me up. <laughs> I appreciate yeah. both of you. <laughs> um, but then you go back to, like, the hand-drawn animations and, you know... Hercules doesn't look like Mulan, doesn't look like Beauty and the Beast, uh, doesn't doesn't look like, you know, stuff out of Fantasia or whatever, you know, so, uh, there, and even further back, Sleeping Beauty looks different from Peter Pan. I mean, there, there are some similarities, but then there's usually like a look for the movie, and it's more than just a color palette, it's like there is a design philosophy, and this movie had a design philosophy, and it had a design personality. And even beyond that, there were, as as Ravi mentioned, the, the, the comic book aesthetics that it brings in. Uh, definitely other movies have tried to do comic book panels on screen. And I wish I could remember who said this because I don't want to... I, I remember thinking it was great. Not really, I couldn't really articulate why I thought it was great. And I think this was a filmmaker who said this on Twitter or something. And I can't remember exactly who it was and I couldn't find it earlier. Um but what they get about it is that you can't necessarily just recreate comic book panel, like have the comic book panel effect in a movie, because the reason there are comic book panels is to show the passage of time. The passage of time is actively happening when you watch a movie. So what they do differently is that they use the panels to show different perspectives and uh, I'm thinking specifically when Miles finally dives and you see multiple panels across the screen appear, each one getting a little bit closer to his face. And and it gets the emotion across that way. And, and so it's just really, really elegantly done. Um, not to, uh, And as I was saying, like major studios just don't put out animated movies that look different from other animated movies. You know, take such a big risk. Uh, the closest I think we've seen recently was the Lego movie, which also a Lord Miller uh, production. I don't know if there's necessarily a uh, connection there or not. 
but even that one, you could say that it was just CGI, photorealistic CGI recreating stop motion because uh, it's very much a stop motion aesthetic in the Lego movie because it looks like it's all made of Legos. You know, very creative design, definitely. Um, but I feel like Spider-Man is on a little bit of a different level from that. And really, my favorite thing about this, and I think this is something that even goes back to the original Spider-Verse comic, is having each of the different Spider characters have their own visual style. I think that was absolutely brilliant. And especially uh, when you get Spider-Man Noir, who is black and white, who does have even the shadows he casts, uh, use those Bendy dots that Rob was talking about to uh, create those shadows. Spider-Ham looks like he came out of a Looney Tunes cartoon. Like, he looks like a hand-drawn animated character. Penny Parker, she looks like an anime character. Uh, it's really, really well done. Uh, that, and, and it works because we've already gotten accustomed to this comic book-looking universe. You can have these characters with completely different art styles coexist, and you accept it. Uh, and and I just, oh, it's just one of my favorite things. I, I I love it so much. What do you guys think? I mean, you made me think of Space Jam. Yes. And like Space Jam was, you know, a, it was a really long time ago. So animation has come a long way since then. I agree with everything you said, but I think about stuff like way before we had the capabilities to do this, where you try to put a cartoon character in a world that isn't cartoons and like... Sp- like, we all have probably nostalgia for Space Jam. I'm sure we all do, because it came out around the same age range for all, most of us. And, you know, mm. it's a movie we like. But if you go back and watch it now, the animation looks so out of place. It probably didn't as a kid, but it just looks kind of messed up. And even stuff like Who Framed Robert, Roger Rabbit, like the humans interacting with the animations, there's something that's just not exactly 100% with them. And somehow... This is an entirely animated movie, but somehow they use all these different styles and none of the characters look like they don't belong. And I think that's really cool. So I, I agree with everything you said. And specifically, the one that is the wackiest to me, which is why I think of Space Jam, is Spider-Pig or Spider-Ham. Mm-hmm. Um, because of all of them, you'd think he's the one that shouldn't fit in the most. And he literally hits Mecha Scorpion with a hammer and an anvil. So... <laughs> The anvil is such oh, a great man. gag. Oh. So the animation in this movie, um, it makes me think of a video game. So when I think of like groundbreaking animation, I think of this movie and I think of a particular video game. If any of you haven't seen, I know Peaches has, but I don't know if the two of you have. Have you seen the Dragon Ball Fighters video game? I've seen, yeah. No. I, ha- I haven't actually played it, but, but I've seen some footage from it. So, I saw it, Master Roshi was just announced. Master Roshi was just Very cool. But it looks exactly like the anime. I'm very impressed by it. I, I honestly think it's visually, they did an amazing job. And uh, it, it feels like they're using a lot of the same techniques here because those are 3D rendered models that they have used tricks to then make it look like it is a 2D model. But it is Cell a. shading has come so far from where it was in the early 2000s when it was like the new trend. Right, right, absolutely. And they talk about how like they almost use reverse cell shading and they like try to do things. They do, they intentionally do trappings that happen when you are 
when you are drawing 2D animation and they add that into their 3D animation. They add in those imperfections to then get that that 2D animated look. And I think this is a movie that kind of does that. I was also just reading that um, they intentionally would keep certain scenes. um, They would like split the scene in half and then keep half of the scene on that particular frame for an extra frame so that the scene would appear what they would call crunchy to give it a little bit more depth, which is another crazy technique that I don't think anybody would do because you would probably be like, oh, that's just going to be confusing and people aren't going to like it. But I think the art style um, really succeeded because of it. And I think narratively, the art style is really important to this this film and for it to actually work. The art style has to be a very... It doesn't have to be very particular in regards to um, the necessarily the way it looks, but it has to be very particular in the way that it feels. Um, because if it doesn't, then this movie does not work. Um, because like if you did this movie, I personally don't think this movie works as a live-action movie. I don't think you could make this movie live-action. I don't think it would work at all. Okay. But if you made it animated the way that you did with this film, it works on every front. Can you imagine like a little pig hitting a scorpion with a hammer? Like just <laughs> holding the hammer with his little hoof and like hitting a scorpion on the head. That'd be so now, cool. hear me out. So if they made a Spider-Verse with- movie that was like Roger Rabbit, how would you feel about that? Oh, I was sorry. just going to say the same thing. I was going to say I agree with Eduardo, but if they did Spider-Ham in the Roger Rabbit <laughs> style, I think that I would part be, of it works. That would be my favorite movie of all time. Um. Yep. <laughs> Look, I love Spider-Man. But I have been to- I have been shown that when there are versions of Spider Man that I don't like, I can learn to dislike Spider Man, and I never want to personally dislike Spider Man. So I want them to take all the chances they can, as long as they never make Amazing Spider Man two ever again. <laughs> yes, ah, agreed. It's fair. <laughs> In my mouth. <laughs> So my hope is whenever they do a Spider-Verse where they bring in Andrew Garfield and Tom Holland and, and Tobey Maguire, that Andrew Garfield just expresses how happy he is to be away from his universe. <laughs> That's my hope. Well, you know, in the Spider-Verse comic, they couldn't show them on panel, but there is a reference to, hey, there's that Spider-Man over there uh, that looks like the guy from Seabiscuit. And that one looks like the guy from the Facebook movie. <laughs> and, and they mentioned... So I one, read that. I know I read that. It's in one of the tie-ins, I think. Um, I think they mentioned the Spider-Man that won't stop singing, uh, which would be the Broadway Spider-Man. <laughs> Spider-Man, turn off the dark. Um, oh, speaking of the things one you that hate, te- the one that teaches the alphabet from the Electric Company in the seventies. Like they, like they mentioned all these Spider-Men. <laughs> but I'm I'm gonna hold off for now because that's getting into my other topic that I want to talk about later. So I will zip up for now. Yeah. We'll talk about. Hey, that it's back, oh. baby! Amazing. <laughs> Spider-Man. Spectacular. Ultimate. The group discusses the plan to destroy the Collider after the rest use it to go home. As they glitch out, Miles insists he has to be the one to do it because the rest will die if they stay. They all challenge Miles on his abilities, and though Peter vouches for him, Morales is unable to perform on command. He can't do it on command. (laughs) (laughs) They can do all kinds of things. Just those two things. Just those two things. <laughs> yeah, they straight up just beat the shit out of him. Yeah. Poor guy. Yeah. Yep. Surprise attack. Uh, 
They all challenge Miles and his abilities, and though Peter vouched for him, Miles didn't perform on command and leaves the rest to express their doubt. As Miles ignores his dad's phone calls, Jefferson is cruising the city to try and find his son and calls his brother Aaron to ask for help leaving a voicemail. Miles stops by Aaron's apartment, but when his uncle is not there, he starts leaving a note. The prowler suddenly appears through the fire escape, and Miles turns invisible to hide. As the prowler answers a phone call from the pink pin, saying he is looking for the kid, he takes off his mask, revealing Uncle Aaron. Dum dum And the music. Yeah. The prowler what? music is actually terrifying. And it's it so yeah. Yes. Absolutely. It's so scary and it's so well placed because it like they intentionally make it like come out of nowhere sometimes where it's just like and you're like, oh sh- mm-hmm. shit. It's the prowler, man. <laughs> I mean, it makes sense, though, like, and I don't I'm not saying that you don't agree with this, but just like my take on that is it makes a lot of sense because not only is he scared of this villain that is possibly about to murder him, but when the mask is taken off and it is revealed that it's his uncle, like that's extra scary because now you're in a very emotionally stressful situation where someone you really care about is trying to kill you. Um. So I think that music works really well for everything happening. Yeah. And mm-hmm. uh, you got to change your pants after that scene. True. <laughs> yes. Or wear brown pants. <laughs> and you know it's coming. You know that little, oh, he's there look is coming, that jump scare. And it's still just, it's very good. Mm. horrified miles tries to run but the prowler's infrared vision allows him to see his invisible nephew he gives chase but miles is able to escape through traffic at the parker residence the group is able to create a new goober and relaxes in may's living room miles bursts in and starts to explain that his uncle is the prowler gwen asks if he was followed and miles says no before the doorbell rings and dr octopus breaks through the door Tombstone arrives next, along with the Dimensions four-legged, clawed, Spanish-speaking version of the Scorpion. Uh, Love the translation, by the way. Like the translated from Spanish, just like in a comic. (laughs) The three attack, trying to get the Goober and destroying May's house. As the massive battle ensues, take it outside, Peaches. Oh, go ahead. And I love the I love the four part shot of three things destroyed and then Spider Man <laughs> breaking, breaking the plate <laughs> intentionally breaking the plate. <laughs> I love Spider Man so much. Uh, Peaches, y- you like you like this movie for some you know I think the the Spider Man movies kind of get the rub when we talk about origin stories. It's Spider Man and Batman where people talk about how we're tired of seeing origin stories and we're tired of things kind of being like spoon fed to us. Um, and this movie doesn't do that. And you wanted to touch on that a little bit. Yeah. And, and I would have said something similar in the homecoming episode too. So I think, I think the two recent new entries into the, uh, not the MCU, like the Marvel cinematic universe, but the Marvel cinematic existence that we have on earth (laughs) rather, I think both of the two most recent entries do a great job of telling an origin story without like, overinflating all the details that we already know. Um, and we touched on this a little earlier, so I'm not, I don't need to talk about it for a really long time unless you guys severely disagree. But um, I like that all of the origin that we get in this movie is the full version of a Miles story and the Cliff Notes version of all the other spider people we meet. I think it was really clever to show their 
intros as little comic book um, quick synopsis synopses. Um, and I thought it was comical, literally and funny um, and just well done. But I also like that because because they we have an audience that already knows a bunch about Spider-Man, we get villains like this in the movie teaming up with Kingpin and it turns into something that new people and like veteran fans can enjoy. We don't just get a regular uh, a regular scorpion who is a man in a suit with a tail on it. We get like a mecha scorpion who is speaking Spanish and is really terrifying looking. I mean, he looks like I don't know how many people have ever played League of Legends here that are listeners uh, that aren't just me and Eduardo, but he looks like Urgot. You know what I'm talking about? Like he looks just like Urgot from League of Legends. Yes, and he does. Um, we get Tombstone, who is introduced earlier in the movie, but like, who the hell knows about Tombstone? Spider-Man fans do. Um, and we just there's all of this. It's just such the it's the coolest combination of origin and and understanding your audience. Um, and it's just really like a pleasure all the way through for that reason. Um, I don't know. I, I We talked about it earlier. I don't need to go too much more in depth, but I just like that. I think it's neat. The, the little ensemble of villains that they make in this movie is is cool. Yeah, absolutely. And I gasped when Prowler showed up in the first fight scene with Green Goblin. I mean, oh my God, they used the Prowler. And then I realized... I. I didn't read any of Aaron Davis's stories from the ultimate universe, but I was aware of the connection. So pretty quickly I realized where they were going to go with this, but it was still exciting to me. Like they used the prowler and then I see tombstone. It's like, Oh my God, they used the tombstone. Mm -hmm. I mean, they Um, almost have a full sinister six just in this movie. (laughs) Right. It's like the B tier sinister (laughs) six, but in this case, I think that's a good (laughs) thing, but I think that's a positive thing in this case. They're intentionally using just like you said, characters, they haven't really been used. And I think that's great. It was so cool seeing It's also the only time we're ever going to get a Kingpin who actually looks like Kingpin from the comics. And a yes, Kingpin who is like body is literal than any human. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> hey, I'm still pulling for the big show, all right? <laughs> <laughs> but no, I think that's a great point. Yeah, and just... I think um, the movie does a really good job. I think comic book fans in general and this goes for fans of fandoms not just comic book but fandoms in general have a really big problem with changes to their beloved characters take literally any property and a a lot of the times a lot of sort of pushback on oh well that's not the same character that i am used to and things like that i don't know what you're talking about (laughs) You know, I wasn't even singling you out for this, but hey, here we are. <laughs> I knew you were. I knew you were. Like he likes it or something. Um, but I think this movie does a really good job high. of being respectful to these characters, but also introducing them in new and interesting ways, which is literally in the spirit of what comic books do, which is reinvent their same characters in new and interesting ways. That's why there are 300 different versions of Spider-Man. That's why there are all these different issues of X-Men and Captain America and Iron Man, because that's what comics do. It takes these beloved characters and it puts them through other people's lenses and their experiences. Another, um, another point I want to make to everything you just said, Peaches, is... I have talked about in the Tom Holland movies that I feel like the MCU is kind of tiptoeing, almost kind of trying to be cute around the with great power comes great responsibility. And 
I think it's good that they haven't gone back and shown his his origin story, but I feel like they've kind of skirted around the core concept of Spider-Man. This movie basically skips and brushes over, just like you said, those origin stories. Yet with great power comes great responsibility is used in this film. It is an important part of the um, the thesis of the character. And they also lampshade it. The, like, again, having your cake and eating With great too, ability comes great people. accountability. That's not right. even the same. Right, right, absolutely. <laughs> or Peter B. Uh-huh. Parker, old and sick of it, Peter B. Parker, is don't you dare finish yeah. that sentence. Mm-hmm. I, I, that's, a, that's great. And I love it. I love that they're able to say, this is important to Spider-Man, but also we can make fun of it at the same time. I, I think it's used fantastically in this. And that, that's to the same point you're already making. The Prowler arrives and begins pursuing Miles. He chases his nephew to the roof and dangles him over the edge by his neck, prepared to kill him with his claws before taking his mask off to discover the truth of his adversary. Shaken, Aaron safely lets go of his nephew and pulls Miles' mask back down. The kingpin demands Prowler kill the boy, and when Prowler steps away... Is it the kingpin that shoots him in the back? I thought it was Tombstone. No, it's kingpin. It's the kingpin. Yes, it's kingpin directly kills him, and then Spider-Man kicks the kingpin when he tries to shoot Miles. Uh, Peter creates a distraction and Miles runs away with Aaron and Toph. Be more specific. (laughs) (laughs) As Miles escapes, Jefferson sees him and pursues. In an alley nearby, Aaron dies, apologizing to Miles and telling him, "You're you're the best of us, just keep going. As Miles grieves, his father arrives and holds him up, but Morales is able to turn invisible and leaves. Jefferson finds his brother's body and mourns and angrily calls for all units to find the new Spider-Man. Miles returns to his room at school and begins angrily destroying it when the rest of the spider gang arrives. They all share their own moment of loss, then say goodbye as all but Peter leave. Peter tells Miles he's not ready and has to stay behind, insisting he'll be the one to stay behind and die so the others can escape. Miles protests, echoing his promise to the dead Spider-Man, but is unable to fight Parker. Miles asks when he'll know when he'll know he's ready, and Peter tells him, you won't. It's a leap of faith. Peter sorrowfully webs Miles to his chair and leaves with the others to stop the collider. Hours later, Jefferson arrives to talk to his son. Through the door, Miles sees Miles. Er, through the door, seeing Miles' shadow, he expresses regret over driving his son away, but expresses pride in who he is and tries to tell him about Uncle Aaron. There's this speech that he gives. I think. It is so refreshing to see a healthy parent-child relationship expressed in any of these art forms, right? Because Mm -hmm. largely, a lot of these superhero stories are about orphans or people who watch their parents be murdered Mm -hmm. or, you know, you know what I mean? Like, it's always just something dysfunctional or something like that. So it is very nice to see something like this, which is a healthy discussion between a father and a son and something like, I don't know if your dad's ever said anything like this to you or your parents in general, ever said anything of this about to you about your potential and about how they see your potential and how they just want the best for you. I feel like that's like a speech. Every parent gives to their child at some point in their life about, look, I see something in you. You're going to be great one day. And I see it. And I love you. And, you know, I'm always going to be here for you. And that's just something so relatable. And once again, I use the word relatable so much in this movie because I relate to it in a lot of different ways. Not just because the character is Puerto Rican. What, what? Um, mm-hmm. But because, yeah. 
that because a lot of the experiences that he's growing through or experiences that I've gone through, not necessarily with being Spider-Man, but this speech, I can relate to this vividly about the speech that this, this parent is giving to their child about, you know, you don't see what I see, but I see something great. And that's some, that's like a conversation we should all be having with each other on a constant basis because we're mm. all capable of doing great things. Man, yeah, dude, this stop. Is stop it. I've already, I've already gotten <laughs> yeah. to the crying point, okay? Do you understand? Yeah, I'm going to start peaching. Listen, you just, you just synopsticized. That's a word now. You just said they all came in. They gave Miles their, their tragic story of how they became spider people. Then they... They don't let him join the crew. They Peter webs him to a chair. He won't know he's ready. He just needs to take a leap of faith. And then his dad gives him this speech. Like it's, how do you not cry in that scene? Okay, <laughs> that's it. I'm 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 done ranting. It's such a well done scene. Uh, first, the dramatic irony of Miles not being able to speak, and you know that because his mouth is webbed shut, but his father doesn't know that and thinks that he's just getting the silent treatment. And you, you feel for the dad in that moment, I think. Um, and you feel for miles too, because for all we know, miles maybe does want to say something. And right now he probably needs his dad, but, but he can't avail himself of that. But his dad still says all these things that, you know, he says all the right things still. And, uh, Maybe it's a bit of a cliche, but I always found the imagery of two people separated by a barrier. Like when the camera shows that two people who are separated by a barrier and can't speak to each other, but they know the other one is there. Like I find that that's, I think that's just a really striking image. And I know, I know this isn't the first movie that's done it. Um, uh, I'm that especially Doctor, fits Doctor in Hulu with this but... style, though, because it ends up looking yeah. like a comic book. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's yeah. the kind of thing that they do in comics, where they'll put the characters in separate panels to make the separation really apparent, and and, and they they do that really well in this. I feel like this is really striking image. The film. Yeah, I mean, it really is. I mean, again, I mean, we have no more coming up. Shortly. I can't go. Oh man. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, there's only so much I can say about how amazing this movie looks. Uh, but, Spectacular. But, yeah, um, Ultimate. Superior. Hey. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but but again, really, it's, 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 it's the composition, too. It's just like, uh, it's just so great. Jefferson says, I love you, then waits to hear it back. Miles is too stunned to say anything, and his father leaves, sad. I like. I know you meant his father leaves sad, but I read it as his father leaves sad. <laughs> it's like a tweet. Uh, uh, Miles finally relaxes. Save the post Malone. <laughs> Miles finally relaxes and creates a venom strike on command, destroying the webs, and he excitedly leaves the dorm. Uh, and then you get uh, a poster of Chance the Rapper on there with the four instead of the three. Chance the multiverse. The three is supposed to be for uh, Chicago, and so he's got the four on there to be like somebody else, I guess. Um, (laughs) Hmm. 
Miles makes his way to the Parker bunker where a waiting Aunt May helps him create a new black costume with a spray painted red spider logo and fits him with a pair of web shooters. This outfit, this costume, the whole thing, not just like the black part, but the like shorts, the Jordans, the jacket with the hoodie is the most fire costume. It is <laughs> it's great. so awesome. <laughs> It's very modern. I, I prefer hobo janky Spider-Man's costume. <laughs> it feel it feels like it fits him. I like that he spray painted it too. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I it's personal it a cool touch. Mm-hmm. Miles makes his way to the top of a skyscraper set to "What's Up, Danger," and as the music waits a beat, he throws himself upside down from the building to the streets below with a gorgeous inverted shot of the city, resulting in the effect of Miles rising through the screen rather than falling. Be a good desktop. Hey, what's up, Danger? Yeah. Uh, I love this only... scene so much. There is a very strong possibility I'm getting it tattooed on my body. Like I like it really? that much. On his whole left butt. Cheek. And I want to point <laughs> the whole thing. I want to point out something. What's up, Danger? I want to point out something <laughs> I never caught until re- until this weekend, which is when he takes throws himself off, and it's iconic the visual of him ripping the glass away when he throws himself off. That's cool. It's a great visual. But that's showing that he's still not relaxed. His fingers are still caught. And so he is forcing himself off. That's his leap of faith, is to get himself to embrace this and just push himself to do it. God damn it, Robbie. Tear his fingers (laughs) off the glass. So amazing. I didn't think about that. And that's why the glass breaks, because he's not there yet. He's got to go through his leap of faith first. And the leap of faith is not him being ready and jumping. The leap of faith is him breaking the glass to fall off. Right. And That's why he's like it. tumbling on the way down. He's not like at the beginning mm-hmm. of his like descent down. He's not graceful. He's like flopping around everywhere. He's like rolling. And then suddenly he mm-hmm. like gets a hang of it. And then it's so good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Should I jump off my building? I don't know why I just no. thought of this, but it, yesterday, uh, my wife and I, we went to the drive-in, and we saw Harry Potter's 3 and 4, and there's this scene in Harry Potter 3 of Harry writing a hippogriff, and he lets out this breathy scream, and it's not like, woohoo, he's like, because he's like a teenager <laughs> and his voice hasn't dropped yet. And it, it, it like reminded me of this scene because I was like, man, that scene is done really poorly. And this scene is done really well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't know why I brought that up. Uh, uh, be careful. If you bring up that movie around me, I, w- I am liable to start spitting hot takes woo! that people will get mad at uh, me. For. Mm-hmm. I really like that movie. So I hope you don't hate it. Okay, we need yeah, to do our going. Harry Potter spell. Let's, let's, let's change the subject. Um, <laughs> uh, As the music picks back up, Miles successfully swings over the streets, and now, moving like a real Spider-Man, makes his way through Brooklyn. So that's the iconic image from this movie. Is that upside down shot? They should not have put that in the trailer. That's the one thing I gotta say. They should Agreed. not have put that in the trailer. And every single poster uh-huh. and... Because I probably would yeah. have wept openly if I hadn't already seen it a million times mm-hmm. before seeing the movie. Do you have a poster of it? Why is it? I know what you're Literally doing. Literally, right it's not already hanging up. I don't have a frame for it yet. Oh my god! Like on hand. Did you prepare yeah. this? Bailey got for this it for moment for my birthday. To the viewer, Eduardo is pulling out the actual poster of what we're discussing. You, listen, man, you can't pause that oh, long so in between saying pulling out and doing anything else. You you have to. <laughs> 
<laughs> you have to connect those sentences without a pause. It's just so good. It's so it's good. So this, you can't see it, but it's a more like um drawn it's so good it, Spider-Man. I think it's an art version of it. Like I don't think this is actually Yeah, it looks more like of a watercolory color. type. Oh, so oh, good. That's gorgeous. That's really great. Very man. nice. Oh. Um, I need to get a frame for it, which is why it's not hanging up yet. Excuse me while I put this away awkwardly. Uh, pardon me. And we are talking about the art. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, oh, I we are. it's a piece of art. Uh, oh, right. <laughs> Yeehaw. All right. It's time to talk about the soundtrack because this is a scene that apparently is controversial to some people and they're wrong. Um, it's like one person. No, he, it's not just one person. So there's a guy that I watch on YouTube oh, called no. Cosmonaut Variety Hour. And I agree with his perspective. I would say a good 80 to 90% of the time. But he also had this take of he didn't like this song choice. And I think it's so absolutely wrong. And I need oh, to express gosh. why. So the, the music in this movie is so important at setting the stage. And one... Uh, if, if I understand correctly, all of the music in this movie was written for this movie that's not a previously licensed, like, older song. Like, obviously, Hypnotize wasn't written um, for uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. for this movie and a few others, but all of the, like, current songs, like Sunflower was written for this movie, the one directly after with Nicki Minaj was written for this movie. A lot of the music is written specifically for this movie because all of the songs are supposed to show emotion but it's also supposed to show culture and culture is a really important thing i talked about this on the black panther episode but culture is something that's sort of been missing from movies for a long time Um, and that's because only one culture has been shown to us on cinema mostly um, for a very very long time and the other versions of those cultures have been uh caricaturistic they have been uh sort of stereotypes Um, along that line and so this movie does a really great job of bringing you into this culture and not doing it in a exclusionary way i think there are more people in this world today that can relate to this soundtrack than can relate to lots of other superhero soundtracks anywhere name me one song from the thor soundtrack but I, I oh, oh immigrant I, song. I, yeah. I meant the first Thor, but oh, the first one. Sure, I mean Thor Ragnarok being an exception because it's taking the Guardians of the Galaxy approach. Um, whereas you can <laughs> yes. say those movies aren't similar, but they are similar when it comes to soundtrack. Um, yeah, that was Skyrim, um, by the way. That was not Thor. Yeah, there is a. Um, is there a Chris Cornell? No, that's Avengers. Yeah, it's so weird that there are like three two or three movies where Marvel's like, yeah, we're going to put a pop song in the credits. And after that, they gave up on it except for black Panther. But that's like a completely different. Well, yeah. Cause Kendrick Lamar made that whole album. Yeah. Cause Kendrick Lamar. Yeah. That, yeah. And then I guess like the, the two Spider-Man movies, but those also are older songs. Right. Yeah. So yeah. Whereas this movie, I have this whole soundtrack on my phone and it's not just because I'm a shill for this movie is because this soundtrack actually slaps. Like it is 
a very, very good soundtrack just to listen to even without the movie. But when added into the movie, that one scene that I talked about earlier is the one that I think really represents it, where it's the the Spanish-speaking um, song. Let me find the um, mm-hmm. the name of the song. I'm surprised looking back, going back to the Oscars, now that I've got it here, What's Up Danger was not nominated for an Oscar. I don't, I don't see how this film doesn't win best original score and and well because black panther came out the same year i don't see how this film okay. doesn't win best original score I, it's familia I mean, by Nicki minaj I and anuel a anuel doble okay. featuring bantu yeah i'm with eduardo i don't I, it, this is an incredible soundtrack i don't i cannot understand someone saying that that music just gets me so pumped in that moment mm-hmm. and the way it just goes quiet as he falls and then as he gets sticks the webs the way it just picks back up it's just like like it's chef's kiss perfect it's just yeah. amazing I, and then also no go ahead no, was, uh, you keep going because mine was going to be a little bit less oh. off the mu- music and then what's up danger is not only perfect for th- the statement we were talking about is people saying this would be better as orchestral music the thing is, what we've got is we've got a song that works for Miles and his character and is also a pretty great song. Um, but there is orchestration to this. It is blended in with the song. They blend in. So this song has a few different light motifs. There is kind of the Spider-Man uh, adventure light motif that is used for all the spider people in this film uh, with different arrangements. There's a rock version for uh, Gwen and a, a jazzy version for Spider-Man Noir. And it's blended into this film. And also there's this leap of faith um, theme that plays a lot in this film. And that is played over uh, what's up danger as Miles is falling. And it's fantastic. And then also, also another little note is the Prowler theme is playing in what's up danger. And it's just, it it, it is orchestrated music, but it's orchestrated over this fantastic um, piece of, of uh, what sounds like radio music in a way that just is perfect for the film. And I can't, I cannot listen to anyone trying to tell me that this scene is not the perfect, mm-hmm. just music Dang. perfection. I'm looking at the goes. discography, and both Juice World and uh, I don't know how to say it. Triple X Tenation both did songs for this. Isn't it extension? Is <laughs> it <laughs> extension? Is that how you say it? I I might be wrong. And you might be. I, I have hit. no idea. But both of them passed away, and they both have been right. revered for their oh. craft since. Um, right, right. And so I think another thing the soundtrack did was it it picked authentic artists. It picked artists because they said they wanted to make the soundtrack curated to represent what a teen what a teen like Miles Morales would listen to. Mm-hmm. And so they chose real artists, not just like you know people that are making songs for movies or the most popular. Like I appreciate there's not just like a song by Drake in here at the time. Post Malone wasn't mm-hmm. the most popular guy at, at this point. This is like right around when he was blowing up, but he had written this song for the movie beforehand. Yeah. And this song ended up getting nominated for a Grammy. Good. His, his, I mean, Post right. Malone song. Yeah. Um, there's a few other songs that I wanted to touch on because they just get me hype. Every time I listen to them, elevate, which is the one by DJ Khaled, Denzel Curry, YBN Corday, Suave, and Trevor Rich. Mm-hmm. The one that's like, I gotta go hard. I gotta elevate. That shit gets yeah. me hyped oh, yeah, yeah, every yeah. time. Wait, where does that the what? In the credit. Where is that used? Oh, yeah, okay. yeah. 
Oh, these are some great yeah, you credits. You have to wait until oh, you see the credits, credits to listen to that one. Um, but that one's really yeah. good with the credits. Scared of the Dark, yeah. I never which is by Lil Wayne, Ty Dolla Sign, and featuring ex- mm-hmm. Extension. I don't know how to say it, man. I'm sorry. I apologize to the to all the fans out there of that person. Of that, of that artist. artist. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry to this man. <laughs> Let him extend his deepest regrets. Uh, oh, Scared of the Dark is another one that is just... Like good God! Yep. Like there are just so many, yeah. so many hits and so many just good songs in general. And then when you're adding them into the the movie, the way it's presented, it's just you've already talked about what's up danger, so we didn't need to go too far into it. But mm-hmm. man, what a fantastic! No, please do. What a please do. <laughs> I know you have strong feelings on it. I want to. I think it is so the way that the song builds. Um, I think it is mm-hmm. so important for Miles for us to be understanding what would be going through Miles' head at that time. And it wouldn't be some John Williams score. Not that there's anything wrong with a John Williams score, but if I... I say, watch your tone, sir. <laughs> but if I am Miles Morales li- coming, from, right. coming from Brooklyn and I'm jumping off a building, I'm in my head is not... John Williams in my head is "What's Up Danger" by Blackaway and Black Caviar. It is the songs that yeah. I am familiar with, which is why it works so well. Well, and I think you're right. Not only do I think you're right, but I also think you're getting both. I think this is the song that makes sense to Miles with basically a blended in John Williams style score. You are again, like I said earlier, having your cake and eating it too in this film. It's. I agree. Yeah, because because. Cause it's you, you already have goosebumps like through this whole scene with with mm-hmm. the song choice. I mean, lyrically, it's perfect for the scene. And then like when the when it becomes the Spider-Man motif at the end, I'm getting goosebumps again. Just talking about mm-hmm. it, it's, it's it's just so artfully done. Yeah, something I'll tell. I know I told you guys, but I'll, I'll tell the podcast right now. <laughs> is I messaged all these guys to tell them that just writing the notes and pre- doing the prep for this show, not watching the movie was getting me hype. Just writing these scenes and thinking about this music. And that doesn't, doesn't normally this feels like homework and this one did feel like some homework, but it felt like homework that was just getting me excited. Like calc one, baby. Oh mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Another quick uh, spot <laughs> in the music, by the way, is when, when his headphones fall off and early when he's listening to the uh, Nicki Minaj song, like it's diegetic as soon as the headphones fall off the music starts because he is listening to that music which is another mm. great touch and i know i know sound lord likes his diegetic music you know it baby uh, another fun musical <laughs> uh, musical point in this movie is when kingpin is humming the spider-man theme song yes <laughs> yes yeah no i'm glad you brought it up i knew that someone would have to bring it up but i'm glad eduardo brought up the it, now now I'm mad it, about it, What's Up Danger not getting an Oscar all over again. <laughs> not even being nominated. Because I am of the opinion, personally, that Best Original Song as an Oscar, part of what should be taken into account is how does the song enhance the movie it's in. I agree. And looking at the songs that year, and again, I have not seen every movie in here. The winner was Shallow from A Star Is Born, uh, which... I feel like that was going to win no matter what because they loved it. Star is born. And also they needed to make up for incorrectly not giving Lady Gaga the Oscar two years earlier when they gave it to Sam Smith instead for his really bad James Bond song. I said it. Um, All the stars was nominated from Black Panther. 
I'll Fight from RBG, a movie I forgot existed. Um, the Place Where Lost Things Go from Mary Poppins Turns. And When a Cowboy Trades His Spurs for Wings from The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Not that those aren't all lovely songs, I'm sure. Um, I know a few of them. But Mm-mm. you can't tell me that any one of these scene, like any one of these songs was used in a better way than Fair. What's Up Danger. Maybe Shallow because the whole movie is about like... I, I, is about a performer. So, okay, I'll get shallow. Yeah. When you've got a song that the characters write in that movie and perform. Okay. Yeah. That, that's pretty integral. So I won't, I won't belabor that too much, but this song in this movie, perfection. The music's good. My note. Yeah. <laughs> my yes. note in our discussion thread was the soundtrack slaps. That's it. That's the discussion point because that's all that needs to be said because it's just good, man. It's just yeah. good music, and then it's used intelligently in the film. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I wish the Oscars could get over themselves when it comes to animated movies. Yep. Uh, and and superhero movies as well. Now, granted, this was the year that Black Panther got nominated for a bunch of stuff and won some stuff. But um, there have been, what, three, four animated movies that have ever been nominated for Best Picture? And I guarantee you there are more that have deserved it and or deserved to have won it. Because what Beauty and the Beast was the first, and then you had Wally up, Toy Story three, and I think that's it. I don't even remember if Toy Story three was nominated for Best Picture. I think it was, but I think so. But this, I I honestly think this movie should have been nominated and very well could have won um, if Agreed. they got over themselves saying this is a cartoon about Spider Man. It's so much more than a cartoon about Spider Man, and it's not bad to be a cartoon about Spider Man anyway. It was Beauty and the Beast yep. up, and uh, where'd it go? I just had it. Beauty and the Beast up and Toy Story three. Was Wally not nominated? Only three animated films no. have been nominated. Wow. Okay. Yeah. You know. Oh, you know what? Wally came out the same year as Dark Knight, and yep. people were upset about both Dark Knight and Wally not getting nominated. And so. I remember that was at a That's point right. that I was a moderator for Cinema Blend. Oh, I yeah. did the annual Oscar chat. I was a moderator uh, for the Oscar chat, and I remember that at that point the buzz that the people I basically worked for discussed um, was that Wally was apparently very close was what they were told, but hmm. they slept on Wally. That's a Agreed. goddamn masterpiece. Agreed. Mm. No shame. Spin-off Pixar podcast. <laughs> there we go. The other spider people make their way to Fisk tower where they are shocked and disgusted to find a benefit dinner to honor in honor of Harry of Harry of Spider-Man. <laughs> Harry Potter. <laughs> the catering That's staff. Gonna be They're all wearing glasses and have a scar. I can't believe Lucius Malfoy would do this. <laughs> it's in such poor taste. The catering staff is dressed in Spider-Man masks, allowing the group to sneak in when Penny's robot disguised as a cart. That the whole it's in poor taste is another nod to the ultimate Spider-Man comic because he wears the exact same suit as Peter Parker and any and as he's helping people, uh, Miles in the comic, everybody's like, "Wow, dude, that suit's in really poor taste." Every single time he oh. helps someone, and they added <laughs> it in this movie. It's so good. Um, uh, though this goes well, Peter runs into Mary Jane and realizes his regret over not being there for her. To give her bread. To give her bread. 
the kingpin leaves the dinner and takes an elevator to the collider room where Doc Ock is initializing the firing sequence. The spider squad follows him down the shaft. As the team focuses on the DNA of Vanessa and Richard Fisk in another dimension, the collider fires and begins warping reality across Brooklyn. The spider squad makes it to the panel Peter needs to access to use the goober, but their collective spider sense lets them know they're in a trap. Dr. Octopus attacks Peter while Scorpion and Tombstone attack the others. As Octavius takes hold of Peter and prepares to kill him, one of her arms suddenly starts punching herself in the face. Miles turns visible and rescues Peter to everyone's excitement. Uh, Such a good moment. Mm -hmm. And I like that in that moment, Peter goes, Miles... And Dr. Octopus goes, Spider-Man? Like, it's just a nice touch. Uh, the battle continues as the Collider starts to warm reality, causing phantom vehicles... Warm? warm. <laughs> I wrote warm, I'm sorry. You're fine. It's supposed to be warp. <laughs> causing phantom vehicles and buildings to fly around the room, making for a mind-bending, multi-dimensional fight. Jefferson sees the light coming from the Fisk Tower and heads that direction. Noir manages to take out Tombstone with an exploding car. Scorpion gets the upper hand on Penny and destroys her robot before she is rescued by Ham when he drops a cartoon anvil on Matt Gargan's head. (laughs) Ham's Animaniac's fighting style is too much for the Scorpion, and Penny is able to knock him out with an arm from her robot, though she mourns as it deactivates. Peter, Miles, and Gwen work together to defeat Doc Ock, landing tag team blows as she charges them and the trio prepare for a long fight. An 18-wheeler flies through the space and knocks Octopus out of the fight. Peter, is still- Peter B. Parker's reaction to this. <laughs> like the biggest eyes. <laughs> oh my gosh, it is my favorite. Like his eyes, and him covering his mouth with one hand and grabbing Miles with the other like... <gasps> <laughs> is the funniest thing in the world. Peter is still convinced he will be the only one to stay behind, but Miles steals the goober and outraces Peter to the panel. All right, here's my one problem with this movie. And it's only one, and it's a really small problem. During this scene, he's like, watch the hands, don't watch the face. And then he, like, swings away and has this super dramatic thing where he flies in between these two buildings and then zip lines his way onto, like, a truck and then ends up right above where he just was. Counterpoint, I get that that's weird because he could have just webbed up, but in the very beginning of the movie, when Miles first ends up near the, um, whatever the hell it's called, um, Peter, like the first Peter Parker, does that exact move. So he learned that move watching the original Peter Parker and then replicated it, but added his own flair to it. Yeah, that wasn't something I noticed until this weekend, that he's literally doing the same thing that... Chris Pine did. He does the dive. He uh, comes back up on the like gear and then ends up on the ceiling. And I, and I noticed yeah. that this time too. And I was like, Oh, okay. So he learned some, a little bit of something from everybody. Good for yep. you, miles. Uh, <clears throat> miles prepares to destroy the collider as the spider squad say their goodbyes and return to their dimension. One by one. Penny Parker thanks miles and leaves with her spider in hand. Spider-Noir takes a Rubik's Cube, promising, promising to figure out how it works. <laughs> I don't understand this. <laughs> but I will. Spider-Ham gives Miles a cartoon hammer that fits in his pocket, then leaves with a, that's all, folks. Miles is unsure if he's allowed to say that. <laughs> Legally? Uh, Miles hits on Gwen one more time, 
Then the two agree to be friends, and Spider-Woman departs. With the goober in place, Peter just needs to leave so Miles can hit the activation button and overload the collider. Peter prepares to leave, but expresses doubt over, over going back to his old life. As he does, the Kingpin starts to charge the two Spider-Men. Peter insists he can't let Spider-Man die and tries to stay behind to protect Miles. Miles insists he can't let Spider-Man die again and overwhelms Peter. As Miles prepares to drop Peter into the portal, Peter asks how he knows if he won't screw it up again. Miles tells Peter he won't know, and Peter, for the first time, okay with going back and not dying a hero, agrees it's a leap of faith. And fuck you too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> part of you guys are killing me. Part of what this what makes this movie so successful is its use of themes throughout this movie. And when I say themes, I mean very very simple themes. And they're not. Mm-hmm. Some movies tend to sort of have themes under the surface and you have to really think about it and you have to really sort of, you know, rack your brain and be like, all right, so the theme of this is this and blah, 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 blah. The themes in this movie are very clear to you. You it's, it's a, it's a story about resilience, about getting back up when you're knocked down. It's a story about fear and not letting fear have, uh, have a hold on you. It's a story about failure and understanding what to do and how to be resilient in the face of failure. And it's a story about pressure and expectation and how to live up to those expectations that you set for yourself and that other people set for you and how to how to navigate that minefield. And it does this all with a cartoon spider pig and a black and white spider person and all of these other wacky zany characters. But at the end of the day, it tells a pretty simple story. Um, I was talking with Bailey uh, on the couch a little while ago, and she said she really likes this movie because it feels simple in comparison to something like Infinity War. And I was confused by that at first, and I was like, this movie isn't simple at all. There are like a bunch of different Mm -hmm. dimension spider people and blah, blah, blah. But when you think about it, the movie is very simple. Narratively, it's from one standpoint. And thematically, the the things that are telling you are are simple. And I think that's that's when movies are the best, right? Star Wars is a wonderful series because it's simple. It is a story of good against evil, light against darkness. It is a story anyone can follow, even though there are confusing, you know, subtexts and other underliers. At the end of the day, it is a story anyone can enjoy. This movie does something very similar to Star Wars, where it tells a very simple story. But if you want to dig in further, there is plenty for the few like us who want to. But if you want to just enjoy this movie, have a good time, and take in some of the themes that have happened here, you can do that as well. And that, in my opinion, is the making of a, of a, a great movie, of an all-time great movie. Mm-hmm. I agree. It was enough and, to get Peaches to cry, so... <laughs> and this is going to sound really stupid, but but hear me out. A movie being simple doesn't mean that it's not complex. No, you're absolutely right. <laughs> yeah. Like it there is a complexity to the way that, you know, and a sophistication to the way the story is told. And and there are several themes that it's dealing with, but I think the at its core, as you said, it, it is simple like like Star Wars. You know, Star Wars can be super confusing, but as you, as you also said, it is, you know, it's the hero's journey. It is a very simple story told in an exciting way. And 
and with Star Wars and with this, they're movies that are aimed at everyone, but they're movies that you could say, oh, they're, they're certainly movies that a kid could enjoy if you don't want to call it a kid's movie. Uh, you know, but they, they are purposefully made in such a way that that they speak to kids as well as adults. And, and I think that simplicity helps, um, but that is how, and we've talked about like with animation, how there is a lot of, uh, especially nowadays, a lot of animated television shows like have a, a, you know, like beyond the simple stories that they're telling have a lot of thematic complexity. And, you know, and, and I think that's, you know, people realizing that, you know, kids can handle a lot more than people think they can. Uh, and I hope I, okay. I, I hope I'm not out of place to ask this, but if this movie had come out when you were a kid, Eduardo, how would it have made you? I don't think I would have ever looked at any other property ever again in my entire life. Being (laughs) able to see something like this in, um, personally for me, being able to see somebody who is, of my ethnicity, somebody who I can see myself in on the screen would have changed my life. It would have been something, you know, I think I've had a, a, an identity crisis my entire life because a lot of the properties that I watched never had anybody that looked or had culture in the way that I understood it. And I think a movie like this would have been incredibly important to the point where when I have kids, this is one of the first movies I'm going to show them because I want them to understand that there are movies for people that look and have relationships like us that have have Mm -hmm. family values the way that we do that treat things in certain ways that, you know, just certain cultures do and certain cultures don't. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It doesn't mean I can't enjoy something like um, a Christmas story or home alone that deals with these sort of, very specific ways of dealing with these sort of holidays. None of us have seen a story. Sure, none of us have seen a Christmas story. So I guess that's a bad, <laughs> that's a bad. Uh, but you understand what the I only podcast of four people where yeah. none of them have seen the Christmas story. You understand what I mean, though, where it's these sort of like yes. uh, holidays are the easiest ones to, to point at because holidays are very different depending on what culture you're from. But it's a, it's a lot of this. Not that I can't enjoy this thing, but I want my children to be able to understand what our culture is like and being for them to be able to see it on the big screen like that, I think is going to be um, immense. So to answer your question, Chris, it would have it would have changed my life. Cool. <laughs> I like that answer. Also, I definitely watched a video, a video that broke down how this is a hero's journey, just like you said, Star Wars is. Yeah. And, oh, yeah, yeah. and that's not that's not any sort of criticism. I actually I have the, the 12 points of the hero's journey up. And I am not smart enough to break them down, but some of these are really obvious. You know, the the call to adventure, the supernatural aid is Peter B. Parker. The the uh, the apotheosis is so literally atonement with the father is followed by apotheosis. That is his his one sided conversation with his dad, followed by you know discovering his powers. And it's cliche, but it's cliche in a way that is good. Cliche is not an inherently bad thing. I'm- Speaking of apotheosis real quick, I, I had a note written down that I meant to bring up earlier, and this is actually a good place to do it. The first time he tries to jump off the building and doesn't work, he screams. And the scream appears on screen, and it's, ah! And okay. it's scrolling, it, it's actually sliding down the screen. <laughs> when he does the leap off the building during Waltz of Danger and swings up, it's woo, and it's moving up the screen. Yep. And it's just such a great reflection of it. Uh, you know, it, it, 
I, I had never noticed it until this time watching it. Uh, and it's it's the, the the words move in opposite directions. He's moving opposite directions, and it's him reaching his potential. That is him. That's the moment he becomes Spider Man. Yep, this movie's so good. Yeah, I think it is. I'm getting there. <laughs> Spider Man, Miles Morales, and Kingpin Wilson Fisk brawl on a series of interdimensional subway cars. Fisk is able to gain the upper hand just as Vanessa and Richard arrive from another dimension, causing a reenactment of why Kingpin lost them the first time. The two leave, and an enraged Kingpin attacks Spider-Man with renewed vigor. Jefferson arrives just as Kingpin is able to knock Miles down and prepares to finish him. Jefferson shouts, Get up, Spider-Man! Before Kingpin can finish Miles, he asks if he's ever heard of the shoulder touch. So good. As Fist stands confused, Miles pulls off the uncle, his uncle's move, but throws in a venom strike to knock Pinkpin off his feet. Using webs, he launches Kingpin into the activation button, causing the collider to overload and explode as the dimensions pull safely back apart. Outside Fist's tower, Jefferson helps round up the Kingpin's men when Miles calls, and the two apologize. The call cuts out, and Spider-Man arrives. Jefferson grudgingly expresses his respect, and Spider-Man hugs him, saying, I look forward to working together. I love you. (laughs) (laughs) I look forward to working with you, officer. (laughs) I love you. (laughs) As he leaves, spotlights find the kingpin hung by a giant spider web with a note saying, from your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. Miles delivers his, okay, Let's do this one last time. As he swings across New York, Miles tells his version of the Spider-Man origin, finishes his essay, and reconnects with his dad. Shots of the other Spider-People show Noir solving the Rubik's Cube, Penny repairing her robot, Ham eating a hot dog, Gwen looking back on photos with Miles. That's so messed up, though. Yes. Mm-hmm. And Well, he's a spider. It could be. <laughs> oh, you're right. He got bitten it by- could be an all-B Frank. That's true. That's true. In New I York, mean, it probably comes, is. He he comes from a planet or a, a universe where everyone is an animal character, though, so it's still a little disturbing. <laughs> yeah. Good point. And Peter brings flowers to Mary Jane. Miles repeats MJ's message that we can all be Spider-Man, and unlike the rest, he closes, acknowledging he is not the one and only Spider-Man. As he lays down in his dorm, a portal appears above him, and Gwen's voice asks if he's got a minute. We then get post-credits of Miguel O'Hara's personal assistant, Lila, recounts the multiverse potential disaster and gives him a device allowing him to jump dimensions. Miguel suits up as Spider-Man 2099 and says, let's start at the beginning one last time. And Spider-Man 2099, Miguel, being voiced by Oscar Isaac. Um, mm-hmm. Spider-Man 20... And that's how you know they have plans. <laughs> right. <laughs> Spider-Man 2099 jumps through a portal and ends up in the double identity episode of the Electric Company Spider-Man cartoon, the first animated version of the character, and an episode made famous by the pointing Spider-Man meme. O'Hara points at 1967 animated Peter Parker, telling Parker to come with him. Parker points back, saying it's rude to point, and the two engage in an argument over who pointed first, continuing to point fingers at one another. Now, Chris. Uh, yes. Sequels, man. There's got to be oh, sequels you... to this, right? Oh, I believe the sequel is already in production. Yes. Um, and I think they also have talked about doing a Spider-Gwen movie as well, a spinoff with that version of, of Spider-Gwen. I'd watch that. I, I would I'd watch the hell out of that. I would I would watch a solo movie of any of these spider yep. characters. 
mm-hmm. as well as any future Spider-Verse team-ups. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I am real excited just for the prospect of this becoming a franchise because there are so many alternate universe spider folk that they can, they can get. And this was one of the great things about the Spider-Man, the the Spider-Verse comic series is that there wasn't a budget. They didn't have to worry about it. Uh, And they could just say, all right, you know, they had the, the 1960s cartoon Spider-Man as one of the main characters. They had, the Spider-Man from the Japanese live action TV show from like the seventies or eighties. He's going to be in the sequel. He is That's already confirmed. Oh, hell yeah. He's going to be in the sequel. (laughs) Um, If you guys have never seen the Japanese Spider-Man, it is wild. (laughs) I believe the show that became in America, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. Yes. Correct. Was a spun off of that or or there, there's some connection pretty much the whole, um, uh, uh, Super Sentai series over there was born out of the Japanese Spider-Man show because he had a big spider robot that he, he got had a in. mech. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, he had a mech, and oh, I'm forgetting what it's called right now. But it, you know, you know. So they had all these weird Spider-Man. Like there was a brief shot, uh, like a brief cameo from the Spider-Man from the Marvel versus Capcom two game. You know, so there are all the 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 conceit of that is that every Spider-Man in every universe exists. And had to come together, uh, which is why I brought up earlier the the gag where they they talked about the Broadway Spider-Man and the various movie Spider-Man. So here are just a few spider people that I'm hoping uh, we could see in the future. And, and really, if you take the comics in, into consideration, there is the possibility that these spider people have already been through some giant massive spider crossover before. And maybe they'll remember it. So, you know, but... I would love to see, um, we already talked about all the live action Spider-Man characters would be fun to have. Uh, Christopher Daniel Barnes, who played Spider-Man on the 90s cartoon. Just just to have that Spider-Man in there. Because, mm-hmm. you know, again, I know him from the Spider-Man cartoon maker. Yeah, I was going to uh, say he's cartoon maker Spider-Man to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I think if we could get Yuri Lowenthal to play PS4 Spider-Man. He's also the voice of... Um, Ultimate Alliance 3 Spider-Man so you could get him to play both (laughs) that's true that's true Um, and uh, the PS4 Spider-Man was in the one of the more recent Spider-Verse crossovers in the comics and he found out that there was actually a cop who was a Spider-Man and when he found out there was actually a spider cop he almost cried Um, (laughs) if you've played the PS4 Spider-Man you don't know why that's thing I would also like got a mistake on your hands yeah, get a PS4 and play it. Um, Superior Spider-Man, that would be interesting, right? The one that's actually Doc Ock. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my two personal favorites, um, Spider-Man, who is uh, it's the universe where Aunt May got bitten by the radioactive spider, <laughs> and Spiders-Man. Who is ten thousand spiders? Ten thousand spiders who think that they are Peter Parker, <laughs> and they get and they form the shape of a human and get inside the Spider-Man suit. I forgot about Spiders Man. Yeah, I so, knew you were gonna say that one, but I thought that one's name was Man Spider. No, I think Man Spider is probably. I, I'm the, sure there is a Man, Man Spider is the one that of, with the multiple arms that he turns into a spider. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Like how Man Bat and yeah. Batman is the man who is a bat. Right. Uh, yeah. 
Yeah, no, I don't know. So many possibilities. I don't know that I've ever wanted a sequel more than I want a sequel to this. And and I know that's maybe exaggeration, but as I think about it, I just maybe after I saw The Force Awakens, but I knew a sequel was coming. Like uh-huh. this is just so perfectly set up. Also, gonna say, last episode you said the J. Jonah Jameson uh mid credit sequence was the best credit sequence. And I think you're right, but I think this is a real, real close second. It's very close. Oh, man. The fact that they recreated that pointing Spider-Man meme was just one of the funniest things. I was not expecting that. And the fact that they jumped into the 1963 Spider-Man, if they if that character ends up becoming a even a minor character in the next one, I will be beyond thrilled. The power of quips. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Time to get into some MVPs. Peaches, we're starting with you. Who's your MVP for Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse? Oh, the MVP of this movie is definitively, without a doubt, Spider-Man. Oh, are you I waiting for more? Care to elaborate. You're waiting for more. I had a hard time picking one. They're all so damn good. I don't know. I, I don't love choosing things, It's, but I think for me... It's a toss-up between Peter B. Parker and Miles. And I just, I feel like I personally relate a little bit more to Peter B. Parker because I often wear a suit in the shower while eating pizza. Um, And they both are fantastic. They're both so good in this movie. Um, I like him as the mentor figure that, like, doesn't really want to be there. But he does it anyway because with great accountability and responsibility and my uh, whatever other rhyming words i just i don't know they're both so good it could be a coin flip honestly it could be a coin flip i won't choose oh, you can't fair. make me this isn't the mcu <laughs> i can only robbie what about uh, you make you choose to i don't disagree MCU. with anything you said and yet for me it was still easy <laughs> yep. it's peter b parker who everyone all the spider people are great characters in this um but peter b parker is he is my Spider-Man. He is the character that I know and love, just old and disgruntled. And I actually happen to like the Last Jedi version of Luke, so that doesn't bother me. Um, it's another way uh, it's like Last Jedi. What'd you say? You're right. That's another way it's yes. like Last yeah, Jedi. Yeah, it is. Um, I loved his arc. I loved the way that he is introduced to the film as the mentor figure and then ends up learning a lot and being healed by Miles. Um, Miles is at least as important to Peter as Peter is to Miles in this movie. And I love that dichotomy. Um, I just love his, I just love his arc. Um, and he's also hilarious and a really good character and played extremely well. Uh, and, and again, like Peach has said, I just relate to him quite a bit. I relate to the, uh, the middle-aged sad sack who uh, is maybe regretting some of his life choices. I, I should not have invested into TGI Robbie's, for instance. Um, or, or the other ones I came up with while we were talking, um, the Tombstone Creamery, the Long John Spiders, or the Taco Bell Tower. Taco Bell Tower is so good! <laughs> so yeah, my MVP is Peter Benjamin Parker of Earth TRN 701. Uh, what about you, Eduardo? I already know the answer. I think this movie is fantastic, and I almost feel it is a dis... We created this structure, and I feel that this movie is too good to have an MVP. Like It feels like a disservice to this movie to even have an MVP. I'm saying. But these are the rules, and Peaches, them's the rules, all right? 
That's it. I always follow the rules. We I always know. follow the rules. That's it. And the rule sandstorm. Yes. <laughs> this is basically like you gave someone the right away when you actually had the right away. That's what you're doing right now. <laughs> but truthfully, if I had to pick one character, I would pick Miles because Miles is so refreshing to me. Not that Peter's not. I think Peter B. Parker is as close as you can get to a second MVP for this movie. But I think Miles is the emotional core of this movie. And I think his journey, his experience, I find that I relate to the, the most. And I think that's something this this movie does beautifully is that you don't have to relate to any one character the most. You can relate to Peter B. Parker. You can relate to Spider-Gwen. Hell, you can relate to Aunt May if you really want to. There is a character in this movie for everyone. And that's what makes, that's one of the things that makes this movie so great. Chris? Yeah, I had a real tough time with this. I'm going to give it to Miles by like that much because he did like a little thing with a, his hand he was like a little is a, ti- uh, a tiny <laughs> a tiny bit a tiny bit because uh, uh, as robbie said peter b parker is just a great character as well i just think this is miles's movie and it's a joy to watch him grow into spider-man um but i mean spider-ham and spider-man noir just are delightful uh, Spider Gwen, I want to see a full movie that's just her universe. Yes, I, I really, I really think that would be great. Um, Spider Gwen is a character that I'm not super familiar with from the comics. Um, I, you know, and, and and I think that I, know, I I think a movie with kind of that punk rock aesthetic could be really great. I agree. Uh, I know that's a that's a movie I want to see too. So so it really could have been any of them. Let's get into our ratings. I will be giving Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse 10. He can't do it on commands out of 10. I will uh, give it 10 hammers that fit in your pocket out of 10. Uh, I, too, will give it 10 shoulder touches out of 10. I So real quick, I'm going to say that originally what I wanted to go with is my MacGuffin is stolen bagels Mm -hmm. but i also realized that you know this is our macguffin and this movie has a macguffin they just use a different term for and i felt like i had no choice other than to use this so um i gave it 10 goobers out of 10 there you have it everyone only the second time we have all agreed on 10 out of 10s uh, this gets the the assembly required seal of approval (laughs) is that what that means uh, <laughs> I, I genuinely think this is the best animated film ever and is right gonna, end game is the best superhero. We're going to start seeing it on new versions of the DVD Blu-rays that have like a little, little squat up uh, <laughs> assembly required logo in the top left, the seal of approval. Yeah. So real quick, talk about this movie. Um, this is James Gunn's favorite superhero movie. He said that on Twitter like a month ago. Um, Ryan Johnson called this the Velvet Underground of superhero movies, or I forget if it's superhero animated movies, in the sense that there's that joke that, you know, not a lot of people listen to Velvet Underground, but everyone who went and saw them in concert started their own band. Mm-hmm. He thinks that a lot of kids who went to see this movie are going to become filmmakers because of it. I can see that. And that is incredibly high praise. <laughs> so 
so yeah this is this is this this belongs in the canon of animated films yep um and as and i think at least speaking for me any movie that belongs in the canon of, of animated films belongs in just the great film canon Agreed. like the canon of great films yeah, this is my favorite superhero movie of just all time. And it, it's one of my favorite movies of all time. It might, I think it's very close to being my favorite movie of all time. Wow. Like, it, I just really, really like this movie. It's absolutely amazing to me that there are people in this world that like this movie more than me because it feels impossible. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I very, very, very much like this movie. But that's going to do it. For this episode of Assembly Required and an MCU retrospective, join us on our next episode as we are beginning our journey into the Netflix Marvel series with Daredevil Season 1. If you would like to send us an email with any sort of suggestions as to what you would like to what you would like to listen to, what you would like us to watch, give us a shout. It's going to be assemblyrequiredcast at gmail.com. We are at assemblycast on Twitter. Uh, you can find us all individually, ABCD Eduardo 1, Phil Kid 3, D underscore Peaches, Gator Sacks 2010. It's going to do it for myself, for Robbie, for Chris, for Peaches. We love you, Miles. Bye, everybody. That's all, folks. Hey. Hydra. Begley, Begley. What's up, Another dimension, 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 another dimension.